Hello and welcome back to Lamniforms Radio. My name is Ian Corey. Typically, this is a podcast where I interview other musicians about their own music. But every once in a while, I like to have other music writers on to talk about a more popular or uh, less available band's music. In this particular case, I invited my friends Joseph Schaefer and Langdon Hickman, who write the column Mining Metal on Consequence of Sound, to talk about the legendary British heavy metal band Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden are absolutely one of my favorite bands, as well as one of Langdon and Joseph's favorite bands. They just put out their latest album this year called Senjutsu. I'm not a huge fan of the latest album, but they had this band has had absolutely one of the most incredible runs of high quality material during the 1980s and continues to be one of the best live bands on planet earth they matter a great deal to all three of us they're one of the most important bands in metal history they've also influenced a ton of music outside of heavy metal including synthwave and pop punk which we'll get into in fact we're going to get into the entire iron maiden discography from front to back chronologically now there is one moment where uh, joseph's power went out Uh, due to a lightning strike in western Seattle, so his audio quality is going to kind of dip around that point, uh, and there's going to be a sudden interruption. You'll know it when you hear it. I'm really glad that Joseph and Langdon took the time to talk to me twice for over an hour about this band. Uh, It's a really funny conversation. We cover a lot of topics, and we cover just about every single thing Iron Maiden related that you can imagine, so uh, scream for me, Lambda Forms Radio. Hope you enjoy the conversation. How was how have I been alienated so thoroughly from this conversation so quickly? I, I don't understand. This is what it must be like for normal people to talk to me. Side note, I don't know if anyone listening knows this. This is the first time I've ever seen Langdon's face. Like we've never spoken before. We've been friends for years. We've been we've been co co writers and co editors for almost three years. Never seen or spoken to each other. Nope. <laughs> just wasn't just didn't didn't come up. <laughs> well, it's I'm glad that you brought up the the fact that you guys write together because I think it was the fact that the two of you were talking about writing about Iron Maiden's large body of work during the period of time right before uh, their latest record Sanjutsu came out um that inspired me to be like, "Hey, I should get the Mining Metal dudes on Lamniforms Radio to talk about Iron Maiden." Um and so <laughs> whether or not they're in top 5 or top 3 or whether Metallica gets in or not, we we all agree that Iron Maiden kicks a lot of ass and Oh yeah. I am really looking forward to get digging into why, how and you know, the the particularities of their ass kicking with the two of you. I, I know ahead of time that all three of us disagree with each other. Not one of us agrees, but at any given moment, two of us agree, except on a couple points where we stand alone. I'm very excited. I think that'll be the fun thing to find is where do each of us truly stand alone in the Iron Maiden catalog? <laughs> so did you like spend your day like graphing this? Like, do, did you get like a, a Texas Instruments calculator out and like Bro. Venn diagram? Are maiden wa- takes? I watch I watch math videos for fun. Bro, I'm on the spectrum, bro. I brought this up before. You you have no idea. My brain just keeps this shit. 
<laughs> I remember Ian sent me a link to a thing that he wrote years ago about the drumming on the post-reunion records and about how uh, uh, our boy lost his step. And I'm like, oh, I'm ready to go. Oh, I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I edited that article, and that was one of like five times where I was like, fuck. Ian's a better writer than I am. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but I that was definitely one of the pieces that I feel most proud of at my time in Invisible Oranges. Uh, it was particularly about the way that Iron Maiden's drumming changed over the course of their entire career. Uh, it did end by saying that I, I don't particularly like the drumming on the post-reunion stuff, with one extremely notable exception. But I... By and large, I mean, I love the drumming on Iron Maiden's records. I, but the reason I was able to write that article is I spent a lot of time <laughs> learning pretty much their entire discography on drums. Yeah, um, same. <laughs> and I, that was like, that was just how I was able to be like, oh, th- they do these things repetitively in like every single song um, that he that their primary drummer Nico McBrain pr- plays on. But even if you just learn the first two, it's like, oh yeah. Clive does these specific things that are very different. Excuse me, he's on the first three. First three, yes, was, <laughs> that is true. I saved um, your ass. Some some commenter was there you did. Uh, yeah, I was mixing up because the cool thing about Iron Maiden <laughs> is that they have sort of these overlapping eras that feel kind of distinct but do have crossovers. So it's the fact that the first two records have a different vocalist, the uh, the Paul Diano records, and then you've got Bruce Dickinson while they still have the original drummer. And so number of the beast is this kind of interesting transitional record, despite it being kind of the one that everyone points to as being like sort of the popular best, because it's got some of their most popular songs, including what I think is uh, maybe the best metal song of all time on it. Um, Yeah, no, I know the song you're, you're referring to and yeah. I mean, obviously it's invaders, right? Invaders! Yeah, that's obviously. And then we don't say any of the other words in that in that chorus. We just we just ice them right there. We get canceling. <laughs> Look, um, is there a better metal album that starts with a worse opening track? There isn't. Ooh, that's um, a good question. That is though. a good question. I do like Invaders because it feels insane. It doesn't feel like Iron Maiden. It's like they forgot who they were. And they were like, we should keep this. Yeah. Yeah. This is good. (laughs) It feels very much like a Paul Diano song that got stuck on a Bruce Dickinson record. Because I feel like a lot of the appeal of those first two records is the kind of like sort of punk scumbag energy that Paul Diano brings. Yes. Where he's like embodying the character of like the serial killers that he's singing from. And so you can kind of loosely attempt to stretch that into invaders but that song is uh (laughs) not that great it's not good uh, this is my paper thin defense of it and i'm acknowledging that head uh it's about the saxon invaders of uh of england when when the angles Mm -hmm. were were on it so it is using that in the very we're we're dancing around a word you can look up the lyrics if you want i'm not gonna say it um they use it in the means of seizure but also, you could just not, you just not use it. That's the yeah. other option you, that you could have done. That I would have liked more. Right. Look, I, I don't know Paul Diano if he wrote those lyrics. I don't know Steve Harris. I think Steve Harris probably wrote those lyrics. But let me tell you something. 
um, based on what I know about early Iron Maiden, that is not the use that they meant <laughs> of the word that rhymes with graping. Look, very true. Traipsing. I'm, tra- I'm trying to help, <laughs> and you're tearing my work down <laughs> with your facts. Okay, so before we and your if correct we're information, start talking. If we're going to start talking about the first two Maiden records, which I think is a great place to start because, like, I feel they are criminally overrated. Or underrated. Sorry. I was like, what? I was about to say, like, criminally really underrated. <laughs> criminally underrated. Even though, like, it is like, um, what, what is it? It's like, um, it's like people who like the pre-Mike Patton Faith No More records. Like, hmm. people who love killers live for killers. And I am not one of those people, but, like, it's one of those things where, like, um, you know, if one uh, nucleus of an atom decayed differently, I would be. It is, it is, it is like one line in my genetic code. I'm one of those away from being a killer's guy. I mean, one of the things that I really love about them is we get this weird, it's normally a weird narrative by terminally online, like, black metal dorks or whatever, that Iron Maiden, like, became like this like prog dinosaur kind of thing but you look at those first two records and so long as paul diano is not actively singing the band clearly wants to be yes like at any time he shuts up they're like you get the instrumental bit in wrath child with its weird fucked up time signatures and then he co- he comes in and they straighten out and they start playing normal you get Genghis mm-hmm. Khan, you get Transylvania, you get Ides and March, the, you know, the instrumentals on there. They definitely are, like, they literally, like, from the word go, were always like, I, Steve Harris is like, my, my guy is Chris Squire. That's it. I like Chris Squire. I like Getty Lee. Those are the only two guys that I like. There's also, I think, a really, the, the sort of dinosaur dad rock thing that you're describing, which people usually tend to start pegging on Iron Maiden once they get into the 90s and then the reunion material later on is also present. Like the sort of like the who sounding sort of stuff that's happening on Killers. I think it's the last track in particular that opens and it's like, this sounds like a who song, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think the interesting thing about Iron Maiden among the sort of like pantheon of like the greatest metal bands of all time is there kind of the least heavy one? Like heaviness is not a yeah. quality that I ascribe to their music very much. And it, I think it that happens, it, but it depends yeah, on what your definition the... of heavy is. But the thing that like, you know, they're, they're a band that has like extremely iconic merchandise. So I would imagine that there's a lot of like younger metal heads. Joseph's wearing a Iron Maiden shirt at this very moment. I, I mean, I had this thing with kiss where it's like, I saw the album covers in the face paint and I was like, this looks like the heaviest shit ever. I got to listen to this. And immediately it was like, Oh, okay. And I think there could be a similar thing with iron maiden where you like, you see number of the beast and you see Eddie, you know, like with the, you know, hammer on the cover of killers. And you're like, Oh man, this is going to be fucking brutal. And it's like, it's not brutal music. It's, it's way more like connected to the sound of classic rock and classic hard rock than, even the, like the next wave of stuff that Iron Maiden inspired in heavy metal, uh, which I think is part of the reason that maybe uh, Langdon, you're pointing out this sort of like false narrative about them changing into that kind of thing as time wore on rather than them always being that sort of classic rock ish band. 
Yeah, it's they always have these elements in there, and we sometimes obviously they're different eras or foregrounding different. If it, if they're like a big gem, they foreground different facets of this gem. But it is weird when I see people, especially um, without naming any names, people are like, "I'm an expert on this stuff." Did you know that they only started doing this like in the midnight? And I'm like, "What? What the fuck are you talking about? What? What the fuck are you talking about?" Straight nonsense. Straight doo doo nonsense. I think it's interesting to. I'm glad that you're like foregrounding like the classic rock elements of the band, but at the same time, like I, I want to draw in a parallel, uh, the counterpoint, right? And the counterbalance mm-hmm. is: Are they that heavy? Quote unquote. Maybe not. However, and and this is maybe the most subversive thing about the band: If Venom didn't exist, Maiden would have started black metal because I was going to say so the same much thing. Satan in it. There's so much violence, especially in the in the early stuff. And like mm-hmm. you can hear like that's the fun tension between the band yeah. is like Steve Harris wants to be yes. And Paul Diano is trying to invent Venom or maybe Venom is trying to be <laughs> the first two Iron Maiden albums and they don't have the chops. Right. They just straight right. up cannot play as well. That Yes, you're right. Like, I love you, Venom, but that's the, true. I mean, but this is sort of the appeal of a lot of Iron Maiden is that most bands of their era did not have those kind of chops, period. Yeah. Like, the big thing that I think makes them stand out from a lot of their contemporaries from the new wave of British heavy metal scene, at least from my ears as someone who was not there at the time, was that they just straight up had better musicianship. Just like hand over fist, straight up were better players than everyone else in that scene. And we're also writing these like really direct, punchy, catchy, kind of punk-ish length songs. And in most cases, obviously, you know, you've got Fan of the Opera on the first record and they found ways to sort of stretch out and get their prog on. But the like the mouth feel of Iron Maiden or the ear feel is like this kind of like raw, ugly, punky kind of sound in the beginning. I mean, it's, it's the classic Absolutely. kind of thing that we see in um, both Prague and also classic rock, which the, the dumb historian in me uh, wants to note that like Prague rock wasn't really a term that was used often in the seventies. Those bands typically just lived with each other. It was, after the breakthrough of punk that they started reverse cataloging a lot of bands that they thought were good were rock bands, bands they thought were bad were prog bands. That's where we also get like Deep Purple mm-hmm. as a prog band, which is like, I guess true. Like it's not wrong, but I would not call them that initially. Um, but one of the fascinating things about like Maiden, even on those first two records, is unlike a lot of early new wave of British heavy metal bands, that sound like people are playing the songs. Like, it sounds like some guys with guitars, some guy singing, some guy... Maiden does that thing that, like, Prague at its best does, which is, at least for me, I'm like, how in the fuck do you make this? Like, obviously, you learn how to play an instrument, you learn... If if you're listening to this, you almost certainly play an instrument or know someone who does. You will have spent time with a Maiden record. <laughs> Very true. Like, I, I guarantee you, no matter what you're playing now, oh, you play hardcore? Yeah, you've listened to Maiden records and learned them on your instrument at some point. But, yeah, when you're first hearing even stuff on those first records, or especially cuts like Wrathchild and Genghis, uh, Genghis Khan, it doesn't sound like four punk dudes picking up their instruments and, you know, slinging guitar licks. It... it it like it defy it's like when you hear heart of the sunrise for the first time you're like holy fuck how do you how do you do that 
which mm-hmm. is obviously what pushed them to an echelon beyond a lot of their compatriots. The other thing, of course, that like I, I alluded to earlier is that they have, and this remains the case, they have absolutely fantastic album art. Oh, God, yes. Excellent branding. Like, they have one of the best logos of all time, like, one of the best-looking fonts, and they always have had these, like, incredibly bright, colorful, like, you know, I I think Joseph is right that there's this, like, kind of tension of violence and uh, seediness to the Iron Maiden cover art, but there's also this really kind of, like, vibrant cartoonishness to them. So it, it feels very satanic in that it's, like, selling candy like it's Satan selling candy. You know what I mean? It's got that kind of like um, cartoonish energy to it that makes it appealing to like a 13 year old, but also would be terrifying to their parents, which is like, that's, that's the alchemical power of heavy metal right there. It's, it's sort of, you're absolutely right. It, to, to, to go to your point about, about venom and the inventing black metal thing, I was going to say something similar where like iron maiden at, at certain peak moments of them feel legitimately more evil to me. Like if we're going to quantize the phenomenology of, of evil, um, they feel more evil to me than a lot of black metal, which especially the longer, the longer you spend with it, the more goofy it feels when they're trying to be evil. Um, not every time, but there's a lot of bands where they're like, I am a vampire. Um, with the, uh, that shit drives me up the wall. I'm just like, this, this is, this is corny that like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, ah, I'm not really scared by some guys who recorded into a headset in their basement. That's not. Meanwhile, there's something vibrant and like unearthly about Iron Maiden at their peak that, mm-hmm. uh, obviously we're talking about the Paul years now, but especially once they get Bruce, when he gets into that like high raspy cackle kind of vocal register, like that feels like Satan laughing. Same thing with King Diamond. I mean, that's part of what makes Merciful Fate feel legitimately more evil than a lot of, like, second wave black metal bands. Because I'm like, this is what I think opening hell would sound like. The the sound of an actual maniac. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Do you recall? Okay. So the thing you're talking about, Ian, is is perfect. And, And... This alchemical, like, central point that is the power of heavy metal, it's funny that you're talking about it because you and I also do an anime podcast and we tend to talk about a lot of anime that are also very good at this. This is sort of like the ultimate, like, pop culture pressure point. Like, get me to the exact point where 13-year-old me is scared and 14-year-old me is hyped and do that Ah. consistently. (laughs) That's a perfect thing. And one of the only other bands I can think of that even if they don't always like hit this aim for it is ghost. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you recall when Iron Man, by the way, suck it haters. Yeah. Ghost fucks. Shut up. Do you remember when Iron Maiden took ghost on tour and a bunch of their like OG fans were mad because ghost was too satanic. Look, I distinctly recall going through for, for <laughs> because rocks. I had nothing better to do that day. Apparently going through the official Iron Maiden Facebook pages, 200 some comment threads of, of mad Iowa moms going like, I've been a fan of yours for my entire adult life. I can't believe you would bring an actual Satanist on tour with you. And I'm sitting here. I'm like the, the, the band that did the song, the, the number of the beast. I, do you, how do you miss that? <laughs> well, and let me, I do why. think that there's something to be said because the thing about number of the beast is that it's a song about why Satan is scary and terrifying and you don't want to 
be anywhere near him. It's kind of like the original Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath off Black Sabbath right. in that it's not pro-Satan. It's just that that album cover, it's like, well, no good Christian would have that album in their collection is the kind of vibe. But that's this is another thing that I, I find so funny about the sort of um, the cultural change in heavy metal over time is that a lot of those early bands are Christian bands, essentially, you know, right. and I think Iron Maiden are a Christian band. So it's, it is funny that like their fans, I think their fans are actually onto something there of ghosts have a very different aim, even if they're kind of picking up a lot of the same uh, theatrical tricks from those, you know, that peak Iron Maiden kind of era. That's yeah. Yeah. That is really interesting. I love that. <laughs> so you all, you're both drummers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did I, I play, pick that I, up? You're both drummers. I, I play a lot of guitar these days because I live in an apartment, and the uh, right. the neighbors don't like it when I I have a 36 inch bass drum that's very big. Um, they don't want me hitting that. Wow. Yeah. No. Yeah. Bonham. <laughs> no, had I one, imagine so not. I had to get one. It's <laughs> here's the here's the tension I'm trying to get at because like I don't play drums. I've never played drums. I play bass. Iron Maiden band with good bassist who apparently does a very simple thing that I cannot figure out how. The whole do. the right I, thing. I can't. I cannot yeah. do it. I've he does tried it with two fingers too. That's the it's hard part. Up. And I'm like, how do you? Is it? And people who do it have like showed me. They're like, here's just do 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 do. And I'm like, I, what? I I I've bad hand eye coordination, which is why I'm a bad bassist, right? But the thing Ian and I have in common. So you two have the drums in common. But Ian and I are both vocalists. And here's, there's a specific envy. I've done some singing too. Iron Maiden. There's a specific envy that Iron Maiden gives to metal singers that is both infuriating and intoxicating. And I think now's the time to bring it up because I'm a Paul Diano, but I want to be a Bruce Dickinson. Right. Oh, Lord, <laughs> do I feel are, that? Even though I kind of like Paul Diano's vibe more. Well, Let's let's say let's talk about those two distinct vibes because I feel like this is absolutely like a breaking point. I know there are people that are specifically like first two records only, like right. You're scumbags the stuff, and there are definitely <laughs> there are also people who are only Bruce Dickinson stuff, which I think like both of you are missing large parts of enjoying the fruits of this band. So if if Paul Diano's vocals have this more kind of like scumbag, uh, punky edge. The way that I've thought about Bruce Dickinson, he's he's kind of like, do you remember the the TV show Wishbone? Of course, you know? yes, love that, so love that. Beagle. It's like this dog that is like you know telling stories about like you know recapping like classic literature, you know, sort of this like children's entertainment host. What if the owner of Wishbone was an aerobics instructor? Oh, that's Bruce God. Dickinson. That is Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> he's like the librarian uh if the librarian was indiana jones you know he's got this kind of like children's entertainer vibe but like also this like globe trotting british rapscallion turn of the century hero energy to him it's it's a very specific thing that he's got going on i i like to think that like if paul diano is like uh a crazy guy who bursts out of an alley and just starts barking out the lyrics of Iron Maiden songs at you in like a kind of threatening voice. Uh, that Bruce Dickinson is like if uh, Shakespeare uh, was insane, 
maybe William Wordsworth Longfellow were insane. Like, if he ate people, like, if the guy who wrote, like, uh, The Building of a Ship also was a cannibal, you know, lonely as a cloud, but I, but I chop dudes up. Like, he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't give, like, I'm going to hurt you. He gives, like, I am crazy and I've done, like, I've drank my own urine for health benefits vibes. Which I mean is a compliment. Doesn't cool. sound like one. In this context, that's a compliment. Yeah, his the distinct difference of his vocal style is is also worth pointing out, and that he's he's sort of known for having these kind of like really intense operatic vibrato heavy kind of vocals, but he does have a lot of like these sort of like maniacal laughter and like ca- weird cackling, and he, it's very theatrical even when it's going into these sort of darker and harsher places. There's this sense of him really getting into character, and you know he loves dress up <laughs> there's like costume changes during iron maiden shows where he'll come out dressed like you know a british infantry infantryman or he'll you know suddenly be wearing a pilot's outfit and it's there's all <laughs> like it's a very cartoonish um exuberant sort of thing which is like part of the appeal and oh i think the cliche that's usually brought up about dickinson is that they brought him in because he was a better fit for the larger venues that they're playing and Bruce Dickinson always says that he's kind of like trying to aim for the cheap seats with everything that he's doing so there's like very big vocals these very big arm swinging actions and running from side to side on stage there's this kind of like overdoing it quality to him that is uh, a blast it's a it's a big part of the Iron Maiden appeal mm. my thing with Dickinson is I don't mean this to be condescending, but it's going to it's going to come across that way. So I'm just going to lean into it. Bruce Dickinson is uh, Freddie Mercury, but too straight. <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, no, that's not wrong. He's, he's <laughs> I don't I don't know if he's in on the joke of of the hammy. Like he may be one of those people who's absolutely lacking in self awareness and has figured out the perfect way to weaponize it for his own benefit. Mm-hmm. So, like, what if he's not theatrical, but he's a theater kid? He is a theater kid. I mean, so other things about Bruce Dickinson that, like, these are, like, often bandied about things, but maybe casual Iron Maiden fans don't know, right? He was an uh, Olympic-level fencer, and he's written at least one, but I think it may be uh, a trilogy of comedic, er- erotic Shakespearean novels. He's also a uh, a trained pilot. He flies the plane that Iron Maiden tour in, which is just bonkers. Like he's he yeah he's there's a lot going on with this guy, <laughs> and I think I actually think the comedic novels thing is a sign that he sort of is in on the joke. Like he gets that that's he has a sense of humor at the very least. It's clear this man made balls to Picasso. He has a sense of humor. Yeah, that album title he's a, funny, he, but. <laughs> The sense of the sense of humor is what is what um, it, it, it's the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down. Right. I, I bet he can sing every fucking line to sound of music nerd. Um, <laughs> that's what he that's what he has that Paul Diano doesn't. Right. Because, you know, Paul mm-hmm. Diano sings Wrathchild. This is the meanest, angriest, most like fucking yeah. bruisery song I've ever heard when I'm 12 years old. And it's about like oh, my daddy didn't want me. Oh, it, well, I, I think I think we see that dividing point for the band coming up largely because there it wasn't just about 
the size of the venues, obviously, and you, you were hinting at that with that point, but that's sort of like the pithy takeaway that some people take. But you see the profound level of chops and the profound level of, like, compositional ambition on those early records. Like, even when they're writing punky, like, because that's the other thing we didn't mention. On those first two records, they play with chops, but they play like fucking maniacs with chops. They play like if you're playing a Yes song, like, two to three times as fast as it's supposed to be going. Like, it's it's bananas. And at a certain point, I mean, it's the classic thing of, like, why did Cannibal Corpse kick out one of their first guitarists? You know, why do we see this fairly frequently is they're all looking at each other like, man, we're all getting really good. And they look at Paul and they're like, Paul, can you do literally anything else with your voice? And he's like, no. And they're like, Paul, Paul, please. (laughs) It's like, I won't learn. And they're like, fine. Um, So they got Bruce Dickinson who can do a lot with his voice. And it's like, it's not that those records are bad and they, they still play cuts from those records intermittently through through their stuff it's they still show up on compilations like they don't hide the material at all but they definitely were like we can't grow the way that we want to grow with this guy like we're going to outpace him to a degree where it's going to become comical unless we get a guy who can and that's one huge thing about um bruce uh that is it turns out unique to the three vocalists of bruce is he's the only guy who can like stay toe-to-toe with all the other members of the band when they're, you know, going off on long solos or complicated harmonized parts. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the guitar stuff in particular because it's we've actually gone on for far too long in this conversation to have talked about the drums in Iron Maiden, <laughs> the bass in Iron Maiden, the vocals in Iron Maiden, without talking about, like, the thing that is, like, most people remember about Iron Maiden, which is the fucking guitar parts. Oh, God, yeah. They are not the inventors of harmonized guitars and heavy metal. Obviously, you can point to, like, Thin Lizzy, Wishbone Ash, all the sort of progressive stuff that we're talking about previously. Even, I like, Judas Priest did some of the sort of, like, stacked thirds thing. But Iron Maiden, like, made that an identity unto itself. Uh, and I think like the great thing about Iron Maiden is there's like a specific combination of elements from all of those members um, that is just like that's Iron Maiden, which is like sort of the the it, people call it triplets, but it's not triplets. It's like it's a galloping, galloping bass thing. You, you've yeah. got the the drums that are doing like accents on the like anticipated downbeats. And then over that, you've got both guitars playing in stacked thirds or sixths while the bass is going like basically six, seven, one. That's Iron Maiden. That's the sound of Iron Maiden. Like that is a thing that like if any other band does it, it sounds like Iron Maiden. Like it's, it's unavoidable. They've completely crystallized like basically my favorite sound in heavy metal, which is like the combination of those things, you know? And no one has like, there are no successful Maiden clones. There are bands that took yeah. Maiden and like, so we get like early Fate's Warning stuff, obviously like a God tier band, but they had to progress past the Iron Maiden thing to really make it their own. You have, um, mm-hmm. for as much as different people can like Dream Theater, I know all three of us have different amounts for that. Same thing where the, they had to progress past the, like we're copying Iron Maiden in order to get to like, okay, we're doing that. I think winds up, in certain, especially if you go like too deep underground with with metal, and th- those fans get weird quick, and they get like weird insecurities about shit. That 
Iron Maiden gets viewed as this, like, you're supposed to go past them and you're, um, you're supposed to become a Judas Priest fan, you're supposed to, all, all this kind of stuff. But realistically speaking, they wind up being this foundational heavy metal band for nearly everyone that plays the music. Because, because like mm-hmm. what you were saying, Ian, there's something about, like, Judas Priest may be the very closest to the center of heavy metal as a sound, but when I think about, like, those throat-clenching moments of, like, when the harmonized guitars are soloing together in Iron Maiden, or, like, they're doing this, like, really fucking sick harmonized part, and then it breaks out into a solo, I, like, I'm in my mid-30s, I still drop down to my knees, and I start shrieking, like, joy right. shrieking. Yeah, it's like, like was, ah! you know, just, like... The song that I alluded to being like the best heavy metal song of all time, and I say this intentionally provocatively, but I think like there's a case to be made that it's Hollow Be Thy Name. Yeah. Yes. That, that's that's the one that I assumed you were talking about. The the single greatest moment in that song, like the moment where I'm just like, oh, heavy metal is the best genre to ever exist, is <laughs> coming out of the solo section where they're they've you know, most of the song is just kind of like very good halftime groove that then kicks into double time. They guitarists trade solos and then they lock into this harmonized melody from earlier in the song but now it's in double time and like that exact moment is when it's like oh my god this is the best thing that's ever happened like just the the sort of intense emotionality of it this like because it's a song about someone who's like about to be executed you know and is like grappling with their disbelief and then eventual belief in god in the face of death and that those guitars at that exact moment like capture exactly it's just like this perfectly beautiful poetic moment told it through the most like hype sounds on earth which is harmonized guitars over very loud bass and drums the the fact that fucking the band even agrees with you where the first sound out of bruce dickinson's mouth after this is just this rarefied fucking scream because like leading right out of it is yeah, I can't fucking do it, but you know, just like, I'm like, oh my God, dude, yes, that's what I, I wish I could do that to, right now. I would sound much worse than you, Bruce. I think Hallowed Be Thy Name is, it is not my favorite Iron Maiden song to listen to, but I, I think it's a, an absolute highlight of, of guitar music in general. I also see it as, it's, it is the blueprint for the Metallica ballad. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally. I see that. It, it, which is another thing that like they do very well and 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 hasn't really been copied well ever i don't think mm-hmm. there's only one thing that holds me back from calling hallowed be that name a perfect song and this is this is like one of those little things in maiden that sticks in my throat even though i love this band not only are most of the choruses or most of the verses past the intro which is perfect absolutely perfunctory but they make no goddamn sense and like give Bruce Dickinson a medal for even like executing those words on page in a way that sort of makes sense. Like (laughs) Steve Harris does not write lyrics. He just like writes dialogue and goes to the singer and says, make it fit in the meter, which is really hard. If you've never done that, like trying to do like catchy choruses or catchy verses that make fucking sense that fit into like a complicated meter is really hard. (laughs) I don't know that like Bruce does it better than almost anyone can, but even so 
like the bit getting into life out here is such a strange illusion is like that's where you took this <laughs> i'm about to fist I, fight I think him. It's a, <laughs> no 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 i i love this I, this is this is an important note because iron maiden's lyrics are not like technically speaking good lyrics and the thing that is interesting to me is sometimes the lyrics are not good in a way that is bad and sometimes they're not good in a way that makes that the song perfect. Yes. Like, <laughs> yes. There's this clumsy kind of quality to their lyric writing where, you know, because they do a lot of these adaptations of, of novels or mythology or historical events where you kind of have the sense that they are like, do, like doing the book report the day before it's due is sort of the vibe of a lot of their lyrics. Right. Um, my favorite example of this is the song Alexander the Great, uh, <laughs> which is just, it doesn't like, at no point does it really rhyme. It's just sort of listing facts about Alexander the Great over the course it of the song. Fucking rules. There's no dramatic arc. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> and then it, it like ends very bluntly with, uh, he died in fever in Babylon. And like Bruce Dickinson has to deliver that line with like the most complete, sincere, like dramatic, you know, import. And it's just this like kind of dead in the water fact Look, <laughs> that this, like ends the entire record. This is ultimately what I love most about. So this is where I diverge from some people, Joe, Joe, just specifically Joe, um, that one of the things that I love about metal in general and this is also the salt carries over to my love of prog is that it's they fully fucking commit they never fucking blink they never blink if if there was a shred of doubt it wouldn't work but i'm not here for like i'm not at heavy metal to hear perfectly like crafted pop song gems i love that shit who doesn't love that shit but like no i'm in heavy metal for like Metal should sound like a hybrid of Iron Maiden and Judas Priest in some, like, if you had to pick a platonic ideal, but it should look and have the intellect of Manowar, which is to say, barely any. (laughs) (laughs) Manowar, God bless them. They wrote a 28-minute long epic about Achilles, and they clearly had never listened to a song that long before in their lives. It's bad. It has one of the worst drum solos I've ever heard in my whole life. I don't think the drummer knew the meter once the other band members dropped out, which is the exact opposite of what he's supposed to do. That's he's he's gotten his job and it rocks. It fucking rocks because they're just like, I'm committed. I don't give a fuck. I don't I don't I don't even know how to read. I'm making stuff up about Achilles. Some guy told me about him and I'm saying off the dome the best I can remember. And Iron Maiden is like that, but if they could read. They're not any smarter, but they can read now. They vote for Tories. That's a bad, <laughs> you can't read, can't think very good thing. But but they can, like, if it bangs is what I'm saying, Joe, it bangs. Who, I don't know what he says in the middle of Hallowed Be Thy Name. I look up the lyrics and I'm like, okay, but then I listen to it and I go, he, he's just mumbling there. That's too many words to say and he's not saying half of them because he couldn't. And that's fine because it rocks. It's the it's the same argument in in the technical sense that you need to make for Busta Rhymes, where it's like those aren't even the syllables to the lyrics you're giving <laughs> in that Justin Bieber song, but you are hitting it Shredding. so fast and so hard. I love it. You're killing yeah, yeah, it, bro. Yeah. I don't know what you're doing, but I mean, you're that, killing it. 
I do think that you're, you're correct that there's a spiritual connection. And this is why a lot of like metalheads when they get into rap are always getting into like the super duper fast, your nonstop syllables, lyrical yeah. miracle sort of vibe, you know, that connects to the, like the primal energy of like harmonized guitar solos, really fast, shreddy shit. It's like, this is the, the appeal of a lot of metal. And so even if it doesn't make sense, it kicks your ass. That's like, the thing that is, I, I see the bridge that you're drawing there, you know, I'm glad someone does, because I think if I went to an Iron Maiden fan and I said, I love when Bruce Dickinson gives me the Busta Rhyme feel, it would probably <laughs> like pour a Coors Light down the front of my pants. He's my guess. One of the things that's worth noting here, since we're sort of still in the peak zone of like the 80s Iron Maiden, once Bruce Dickinson joins, once Nico McBrain joins, and Nico McBrain is absolutely like one of the best drummers in heavy metal. The guy can play yeah. parts in one foot that most other drummers need to play with two, uh, and just has some of the best fills ever. Like, if you're a drummer, learn, you know, learn where Eagles dare, you'll be better for yeah. it. I was gonna say, the, <laughs> the, the opening to that fucking love that. Bam. What a great way to introduce the record and like, hey, we've got a new drummer. He's better. <laughs> um, sort this stuff of better. works. Oh no, I, I would say 100. percent He's better. Yeah, this uh, is not this is no just knock in, to in every technical capacity. Clive no, had Clive a really rules. nice like half like I don't want to say jazzy, but he had, he had more of like a classic rock kind of groove, a lot more swung work in a certain feel. way. Yeah, yeah, but. Oh, that makes me want to bring up before we uh, pass totally on uh, my hot take. Uh, Number of the Beast is a weird, lumpy record. No one really talks about that. We all talk about it like it's a masterpiece, but that shit is not a masterpiece. Nearly all the songs are good, but they don't feel like they fit next to each other. Yeah, I agree. You take any two songs, you're like, these are on a record together. And then you look at like, why is 22 Acacia Avenue on the same record as Gangland and Invaders and Hallowed Be Thy Name and The Number of the Beast. That doesn't... Why are these together? Are these just the songs you had written at this time? Better question, why are Gangland and Invaders on the album? Because they're bad. They're not good. And the album is better without them. Also, the B-sides to the album, which were recorded in the same sessions, are canonically better. Like, the sequencing is god awful but people love it for a few good reasons i'll be the name probably number one. First bruce record number two um also it's got run to the hills which is like run to the hills is is to me the first time when what people think of as iron maiden now exists yeah because mm. it it typifies bruce's actual superpower he knows how to make a soccer chant sometimes ah, i'm like yes, i you're right I don't know if this song is racist. The music's great, and I try not to think about the words. But as an American who is not an, yeah. uh, a Native American, sometimes I hear him and I'm like, ooh, I wouldn't sing that line. Like, ooh, I would have skipped that one. But I, I, I agree entirely. That's not my favorite Iron Maiden song for that exact reason. <laughs> but Joseph's point about yeah. the sort of soccer chantability is is so key because it's like right around then that they start really 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 blowing up and starting to play these like huge venues and have this appeal where i think as americans we can sometimes forget that like soccer is the most popular sport in the world it is i'm half brazilian i never forget it's football ian (laughs) well but this is the thing like iron maiden have the same level of global appeal 
and for the same reasons. I think it's worth talking about like Iron Maiden as a live band, Iron Maiden as sort of this like global thing, because it's a big part of the Iron Maiden mythos. You know, they have tons of live albums in part because I think they're very savvy merchandisers and will never miss the opportunity to make a buck. But it also adds to this sort of mystique of like in near the end of the golden age of Iron Maiden, there's the song Fear of the Dark, which is like not the best of their like lengthy title track epic tunes but it's like it's a good one but it is famous because of this like incredibly good live version where the people of brazil basically say no this is our song now we're gonna sing all the guitar parts we're gonna sing the solos we're gonna sing every single thing that happens in this song to the point where you listen to it and it's like wow why are why is there not like crowds chanting on every single iron maiden song like this is this is the appeal is like people all together going whoa 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 you know, that's right. a big part of the Iron Maiden thing is this sort of sociability and um, mass culture element of it. Like when I saw Iron Maiden on the I, I saw them the first time in the Somewhere Back in Time tour and it felt yeah, me too. Im- it felt Same. immediately like everyone around me. So I got lawn seats because I couldn't really I was a college student at the time. I couldn't really afford like proper seats yes that wound up being the best because i'm just standing there holding some beers with a bunch of complete strangers it's me my two roommates and then a bunch of strangers and we're all like you love iron maiden bro and they're like i love iron maiden bro we're like brothers (laughs) and then like the (laughs) the minute the music kicks in you just instinctively like clasp your arms around the people around you and are like mask like it's this the only thing that compared to that in terms of like immediate complete solidarity among the entire crowd was the time I saw blind guardian. They're the only band Uh that's come anywhere close to like the minute they start, you are the crowd and the band are one thing. Totally. Yes. I think, I think similar, similarly, like the most like iconic, like blind guardian live thing is like the Valhalla chorus. Yeah. You know, where you just keep singing the chorus for and eventually the band will either tell you to stop or they'll like kick back into the song. When I saw blind guardian, <laughs> some like people started doing the Valhalla chorus before they even went on stage. <laughs> it was just That's like amazing. That rules. <laughs> it was the best. I loved it. <laughs> and like, it's that kind of like brain dead, uh, group think energy that it, like, it's part of the reason I think Iron Maiden are able to capture such a wide audience is yes. It's like this sort of like wordless chants, these like huge choruses and the quality that Langdon described of like, this is dumb. I love it. And like anyone can experience it on like any level of intellectuality and get something out of it. They've made, they've made like the ultimate pop culture magic trick, which is they're on stage. They think they're doing Shakespeare you're in the crowd and you think it's sports. It rules. <laughs> right. No, it's professional wrestling. It's anime. They're like, they have a big walking cyborg. It, they, have, yeah. they have Satan and a cyborg and a plane. That shit is crazy. They have a pharaoh head that has a mummy in it. Right. Fucking tight. Now they have a third guitarist whose guitar specifically never turns on so he can play fight their mascot. It fucking... It's, <laughs> right, yeah. I, I love also how... He's everyone, running interference. It's best. Every one of their records also... This is charming, and it's true. For the people who are about to be mad at me, it's true. Every Iron Maiden album 
has at least one totally fucking dog shit song. And that's charming. Absolute to me. garbage song. It's it's like it's, that's it's true. part of it. Their best records, the garbage is like so sometimes they don't nail it. Quest for Fire, they did not nail the dog shit. That was too shitty. That song is like I I have to skip it. It's too like in the land of the dinosaurs. I'm like, what are you doing, Bruce? <laughs> that that one's bad. Landing oh, at yeah. daytime TV. Meanwhile, Power Slaves' dog shit song uh, is the. Oh, Duelist. we're gonna disagree about this. I'm sure. It's the Duelist. I like the Duelist. <laughs> yeah, no, we've we've talked about this, Joe, and you're wrong. Um, it very nearly yeah, is Joseph, back you, in the you village. You believe that it's Flash in the Blade, right? No, I don't like. I can give you the songs in 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 total if you want. So it's Aces High. Everyone loves Aces High. Two minutes to midnight. Yeah. You better not say two. We have Lost for Words. Perfect. Flash of the Blade. The Duelists. I kind of like the chorus. Uh, back in the Village. Uh, back in the Village is the one I don't like. Back in the village, I can the the chorus is tight and the ending is tight, but yeah, there's definitely that stretch, the end of side one and the start. Also, the fact that side two is like you have Power Slave going into Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, maybe Un- the best twenty minutes of heavy metal until Ride the Lightning comes out, like <laughs> like literally the peak of the whole genre. But the beginning of side two, Ride the Lightning was before it was. Oh yeah, or yeah. it's the same year, I think. Yeah, yeah, same year. Yeah, I think same earlier year. in that year. Uh, so okay, it's some of the baby, I'm wrong. Um, twenty of the best minutes of heavy metal. But the opening of side two is back in the village. So it's technically back in the village. Power slave, rhyme of the ancient mariner. And how much better would the record be if side two was just power slave, uh, rhyme of the ancient mariner? You just flip the record and get like. But uh, to your point. To your point, like the fact that Iron Maiden have bad songs is like part of the appeal. Like it's yeah. it's fun to be a fan of Iron Maiden and to say like, oh, that that one's kind of a stinker, isn't it? You know, like being able to make fun of Alexander the Great is part of the reason I love listening to Iron Maiden is because I can enjoy it on multiple levels, depending on which song we're talking about. They nearly fucked it up. And somewhere in time and this is this is where I'm going to make Joe mad somewhere in time and uh, seventh son of a seventh son. Um, very nearly don't have any dog shit on them. And that makes it really hard to find them as charming because all the songs bang. All of them. Right. Well, what those are it? my two Those are my two favorite Iron Maiden records. So That's right, Ian. That's make right. of that what you will. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we go into... Okay, so now we're in the, the I think, like, peak Maiden mm-hmm. is where we're talking about... It's Why are we going chronologically through their career? Whatever. I mean... Because it. it's fun. Um, now we're in, like, peak... It is fun. Now we're in peak maiden, right? And did you hear me do rush? I can be far more torturous with this, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I read it all. Um, (laughs) Thank you. I've spent a lot of time on that. We've not talked about (laughs) peace of mind. Oh, we, we touched on peace of mind briefly. I mean, yes, it's the one where Nico McBrain joins the band. It's the one with this sort of sloppy Dune adaptation, um, which I wrote a thing about. If you want to read that, it's very charming and not very good. They, (laughs) I'm like you're you're trying. Boys. Unlike Ian's I essay. love Dune. I've been loving Dune for since I was eight. That was the first time I read Dune. I was eight, and I'm re and I'm like Iron Maiden did a Dune song, and this is before I bought any of their records. The first record of theirs that I bought was Peace of Mind because I was like, it has when Eagles there. Okay, let's flash even further back. Growing up, I'd watch a lot of music videos at like 
midnight to like 4 a.m. because I just couldn't sleep. And that's the first time I saw the man sure. in the box. The first time I saw the man in the box music video is like six and it's like 2 a.m. And I'm the only one awake. And I'm like, am I fucking imagining this? Why is that guy sewn up? Oh, fuck. Um, I love heavy metal. But then you wind up seeing like the classic videos for like Flight of the Icarus, for Where Eagles Dare, for Two Minutes mm-hmm. to Midnight. I'm losing my mind. I'm like, I'm like seven and I'm like, what the fuck is this? This is so fucking tight. Group in a classic rock house. So I'm just like, then I find, oh, on one record, Where Eagles Dare. I love that. The Trooper? Are you kidding? Flight of the Icarus. These this are all on the it. same record. And then it has a Dune song. And I get to the Dune song and I go, man, this sucks. I love Dune. <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> but yeah, so you brought up The Trooper, which I think Joseph wants to talk about in particular. That's what I wanted to talk about. So the point I'm trying to make is like, I, I, I like run to the hills to go back i'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they were trying to not be racist and that's just as good as you can get from a bunch of uneducated (laughs) british dudes in 1983 maybe i shouldn't say that i don't know i there's people so much richer than us they can they're fine we can make fun yeah whatever yeah yeah i'm where the people will think i'm some sort of apologist i'm I'm just trying to say like i don't think it's bad yeah that there's worse shit from this band and also from that year. <laughs> that's, uh, but that's right. Both that's, of those are right. <laughs> <laughs> Way worse shit. That said, the trooper is run to the hills a perfect hit. It yes. is, to me, the quintessential Iron Maiden song. Because you got the soccer chant. You got mm-hmm. the storytelling. You got the weird book report thing. And you got the gallops. And it all works together because they're doing a report on a poem about galloping. And it sounds like fucking galloping. And the lyrics are about you galloping, then dying. It's so yes. fucking yes. sick. Remember when they put that shit in Guitar Hero and it felt as fun to fake play as it does to hear? Fucking amazing. Yes. Fucking perfect. And like people, they yeah, cannot not play it. That song was so good that people who were like, "I bought this because this is like the new hip thing," were like, "Have you heard of Iron Maiden? This song, The Trooper, is amazing." Like, it's it, <laughs> fucking perfect. Like turning the heads of like random fucking people who've never heard the band have no real interest in heavy metal, and obviously we can sneer at that sometimes if you're being kind of like a dumb dickhole, but it has that magic that it's like. This is as undeniable as David Bowie at his best, of Queen at their best, of, uh, like, Motown at yes. its best. Like, if you like sounds that occur that are pleasing, you like The Trooper. No, I totally Fuck. agree. It's, it's one uh, of yes. the best songs that's been recorded. Yeah, it, it does the the part that I described about Hall would be the name, the sort of harmonized lead over the double time near the end. It opens with that. It's like, okay, what if we, instead of making that the climax of the song, we made that like the central functional hook of the song. And surprise, surprise, it's like one of their most popular songs, you know? And I think it's kind of like the model fast Iron Maiden song from that point on. Like the Hall would be that name is kind of the, the blueprint for all of their slow stuff. The Trooper is the blueprint for all of their fast stuff. Going back in time to somewhere in time, going forward, but going backwards. Forward for the band, backwards for us. That's where they start getting the guitar synths. The production becomes a lot more like sparkly and shiny. Love that shit. Uh, which is great for me personally. 
Uh, <laughs> and there's a lot more of the sort of like the prog stuff that we talked about earlier really starts coming more to the fore in a sort of overt way, not just as like an obvious influence, but as an obvious like formal structuring kind of thing. You know, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is like a concept record. It's got like a single story going across the whole thing, whether that story is clear at all. <laughs> its own thing but <laughs> it's at least an attempt to tell like a narrative over the course of the record it's got a 10 minute long title track that uh has my other i think favorite stretch of shit in an iron maiden song ever which is the the ending run of that tune from the solo section into the final guitar part is just like perfect can perfect, we go perfect, back perfect, for perfect a bit music talk about one of my fa- maybe my favorite iron maiden song and the one that it's crazy slept on is the loneliness of the long distance runner? Fucking oh perfect my God. song. Yes, it is such you. a good song. So fucking good. Whenever people are so, this is we did the ranking thing, and I put like somewhere in time was like my number three or something. Number three, and, and, and no other list had it anywhere even close that high. It was like buried in the middle for everyone else. And I'm like, do you not? Do you not have that chorus in your head every second of every day? I can't unthink that. It's dog. It's been like twenty years since I first heard that song. I'm, I'm literally constantly thinking about it. So I, it's, fucking it's good. The part to me that never leaves my head is the the instrumental break. The like that. I just constantly do that like on my knees on desks. Like it's just I'm playing that song on drums constantly. Um, that song does include the the pattern that I do not like that becomes like the thing that Iron Maiden do pretty much from that point on, which is the one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three rhythm, which is, it's cool in that song, but they really run that shit into the ground later on, but we'll get to the later on stuff shortly thereafter. Joseph, you were about to say something. I'm, I'm weird. Cause like, I am not a seventh son guy. That's the other one where like there's like a band of uh, there's like a bandwidth of the fan base that feels the way that some people do about Killers mm-hmm. that they do about Seventh Son and um, I don't understand those time. people they're very strange to me. Langton, you're strange. I don't know if anyone's ever told you that. I've never heard this. Um, That's so fucked. <laughs> however, however, Seventh Son does have another one of my absolute fucking favorite iron maiden songs and that is the evil that men do baby oh yeah Mm, perfect fucking pop song i was about to say um we talk about it like it's a prog record and definitely it has these prog bits like Moonchild is really proggy the title track is really proggy um a lot a lot of like the prophecy and the clairvoyant are but can i play with madness and the evil that men do are straight up glam metal pop metal like perfection there's there's nothing else yeah, there totally true they're not heavy they're just hooks high gloss perfect hair tight clothes glam rocks i'll go on record saying that glam rocks yeah <laughs> i like Ian's you're yeah. right uh, the interesting thing about these records and this kind of like leads us into the the next period of iron maiden which i'm i don't have much to say about except for <laughs> this which is that they start scoring their biggest singles like can i play with madness is their first number one hit in the uk uh and they hit it again i believe with uh, uh the, the very unfortunate bring your daughter to the slaughter so which, like it's, which it's like about that, like, pu- which is about getting your period for some reason fun fact no, half you. of you probably know that um i know that you guys definitely know that that's the most in any wrote it for fucking like 
Friday the 13th, not Friday the 13th, um, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It was written for a Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street yeah. film about getting your period. What the fuck was happening? Bruce Dickinson yeah. is a weird fucking guy who has <laughs> weird fucking opinions on things. But I'll give him this. The only other examples I can think of are Rush and Metallica. But the, the big critique a lot of people have about hard rock music is it's sexism, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm not certain it's possible to, to, like, there's weird shit about Iron Maiden, but there's at least, like, no songs that are sexy, no songs that are them trying to get laid, no songs that are, like, about fucking that I can think of. Like They've got the, like, Charlotte the Harlot and 22 Acacia Avenue, but those are more, like, morality plays about prostitution than actually about sex. They're also set during, uh, what is it, Um, Jack the Ripper era, so it's hard to... Right. (laughs) They they still go into... I think of that as them being, historian mode, which is... Can, can you imagine exactly. how fucking funny it would, what era of Iron Maiden would be funniest to write a fuck tune like Diano I don't think would be as uh, funny would peak Iron would the Prague era of Iron Maiden be the funniest modern Iron Maiden would be really funny no. the song would be 11 minutes long and slow well I think absolutely the funniest would be the the, the Blaze Bailey era because <laughs> that, that be is the least <laughs> I wanna get laid I want to get laid. <laughs> he'd say the he'd say the title of the song for like, like ten minutes in a row. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the the brief period where they temporarily profoundly forgot unsexy how to band. Chronically, yeah. Un- yeah. Well, What's yeah. weird is like you look at them and yeah, no, uh, nearly all of them are unattractive uh, as well. Dave Murray has a cute boyish charm, and then Bruce Dickinson, I think you could make the make the argument is an attractive fellow. None of the others, they all look like goblins. <laughs> And that's great. That's very heavy metal. We look like dog shit as a people. Not me specifically. I'm beautiful. But other, if me and average, we look like dog shit. And that's great. I, I stand. I yeah, stand McBrain, my dog shit people. His face sort of looks like a giant foot. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. There's sort of like a... Uh, I could see, I've had people tell me that they find Bruce Dickinson attractive, which... It's like I it's not for me, but I I see the thing that they're describing, which is, you know, he's like a like, I don't know that the the bangs are kind of (laughs) cute from the 80s. It's a a look. There's something to it. Contemporary. Um, He could go for hours. I think so. I think he could. Right. That's the thing is the the energy is like the, the most sexual part of Iron Maiden. I, I don't want to make light of his uh, his tongue cancer, though he did survive it, thankfully, and I think we're all glad for that. But there is the great anecdote Absolutely. of the other famous person who developed tongue cancer, who, uh, um, Mike, not Michael Douglas, who, Kirk Douglas, uh, Kirk Douglas, who uh, attributed it to uh, too much cunnilingus. Not kidding. He actually contracted it and was like, that's what did it. I, I eat too much pussy. I'm Kirk Douglas. I was Spartacus. It was Michael Douglas. That is how you get tongue cancer if you're not a smoker. And the same thing was attributed to Bruce Dickinson. Although my understanding is his only comment when asked about it in interviews has been, it was my ex-wife. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love you, Bruce. Uh, divorced energy from yeah. the divorced energy era of It's Iron so good um, that he got divorced because now their prog hits so much harder. We'll get into that, though. 
I'm a big proponent that only divorced men can really make progressive rock. Other people can play it, but you can't feel it unless you're divorced and a guy. <laughs> that's that's our music. <laughs> Joseph, you lost power pretty much right around the same time that Iron Maiden did. <laughs> how 90s. did you tie a little bow so well? By the way, I, I don't know exactly how this is going to like come out. I know this is a fix it and post type situation. But whether <laughs> this is so. one episode or two, I just want to say I'm very sorry that like apparently a power transformer near me was struck by lightning. Um, my entire neighborhood went dark. It was actually like very creepy but it was kind of funny to like be walking around on like the pacific ocean beach near all these like blacked out houses and and just hear uh the intro to fear of the dark going through my head <laughs> i was like yeah it is spooky fear of the dark you um yeah so i i think we kind of where langdon and i ended up is that there's really not a lot to say about the final two records of the bruce dickinson run before the reunion and i think that what we did say sans joseph will i can cobble it together to basically sum up our thoughts if joseph if you have any sort of quick takes about that particular chunk yeah uh, we can get to them and then we'll move on to the blaze bailey stuff sure here's my quick take um be Quicker, Be Dead is one of the most underrated Iron Maiden songs, which is interesting mm. that it, I don't think it gets pulled back into their into their live set very much, but I know that they did play it live. It was released as a single. It was a video. And even though it is, like, very transparently them just trying to see, like, can Iron Maiden do the painkiller, like, rapid uh. speed rap metal intro thing, and then being like, nah, I guess we can't. I'm going to go ahead and say, uh, I think he could. And I kind of wish they'd do it more. And I think that song is, if you want, if there's like a modern band that's like, what is a Maiden song that can be taken from Maiden and made your own? That's probably the one. That's very true. I think of like the Gojira cover of Escape as a really good example of like a band being like, this is a song that the original band does not like very much, but we can kind of like proof have like a proof of concept with it in, right. a, in the way that we cover it so if some like speed metal band or like honestly like a, a sort of a, a band i think with like harsh vocals that does melodic guitar parts if they wanted to do a really like aggressive version of be quick or be dead that would be pretty fucking sick arch spire dudes get on it you already have a rapper for a singer <laughs> very true yeah, I, I really like that one riff that happens like uh, during the 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 title line, the ba da na na da 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 da. Like that, that's like a a solid Iron Maiden riff. That yeah, like you can kind of there's some. I think it may be just be the production that keeps that song from feeling like it's hard for me to like put it in the same category as their good stuff. But I I can vibe with the uh, the reclamation project of Be Quick or Be Dead. I mean, this is a minor project. I don't like history mm -hmm. does not need this to happen. It's just one of my fun headcanon mind games that I play instead of, I don't know, actually doing my job or living my life or <laughs> self-actualizing further as a human being. Langdon had something to say, but now he looks absolutely nonplussed by my love of this song. 
uh, rolling a little bit back, I was like, Ian, that's not true. I had a lot to say about these albums. You just were in, in you were hangry and you were like, no, we're done. We don't have anything to say. We're, we're absolutely enough. done with thoughts. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mentioned that like, I didn't use that exact song, but I, the, the fact that we have these like couple of decent tracks scattered across um, No Prayer for the Dying and, and Fear of the Dark that get swallowed up by the fact that like, as we mentioned before, every Iron Maiden song has just a little bit of bullshit on it. And it's <laughs> rare. Every now and again, we get a song devoid of bullshit and it's mystifying and a little confusing. Um, but these ones, they tip the the scale like way in the other direction to the point where just like you know you don't you don't think about how like quest for fire and frankly sun and steel on uh on peace of mind aren't like they're not good but you're like Mm -hmm. i don't give a fuck i don't give a fuck it's iron maiden this album bangs um meanwhile here you're like hey those three songs are actually pretty tight and you're like i don't give a fuck this album sucks (laughs) <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the alchemical power of of how bad it is. Yeah, it's it keeps the total equilibrium there, but to the opposite effect. You're right. Like we forgive the bad songs on good Iron Maiden records, so that we ignore the good songs on bad Iron Maiden records. In a way, <laughs> right? Which is a strange project that that people have. Like I don't know if Maiden has like I just compared them to priest earlier. Like one of the interesting things that's happened recently is, and this will not happen with any of the non Rob Halford Judas priest albums. I don't think Mm -hmm. like, I don't think anyone's going to try and pull jugulator out of the trash bin and be like jugulator. Good. Actually. Um, Langdon, don't even start. I see your face. You're no, smiling. I'm smiling because that's a funny fucking idea. No, I'm especially smiling <laughs> because I listened to the KK Priest album knowing only that it was KK Downing, did not know who was singing, and I went, man, this singer is terrible. Gosh, <laughs> like, this this music's great. I love this music, but good Lord, this singing is bad. Then I legit looked up who it was after I listened, and I went, oh, Uh, (laughs) that's real funny well the thing i was gonna say is is like even those like the canonically bad late 80s priest albums have been like rehabbed almost Mm. complete like turbo used to be the like the saint anger of nawabum and now turbo good actually is like a canonical take it right? fucks it fucks If, if you're a guy who's like turbo bad it's like oh you're not horny enough don't worry about them, right? But, and even right. ran like, it down. Like glam made by like a sociopath, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to think of like uh, this is a useful point of comparison yeah. because Priest actively changed their sound in much more identifiable ways than Maiden did over the course of their like peak period which I think caused a lot of very superficial metal fans to write off the like turbo and the, like maybe the sort of more poppy, like ram it down. Or, yeah, I even remember people saying that like defenders of the faith wasn't good, That's which is stupid. to me is bonkers. It's fucking but, stupid. That's like, I, best eighties record. I'm saying it. Best 80s I, record. I, I, that's that's my favorite as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think that it was easier for this sort of like superficial metalhead mindset to kind of write off records that were just like stylistically different, but still like fundamentally sound in their songwriting and their execution. 
Um, whereas the bad Maiden records are just that. It's not like Maiden tried to do something different. It's just that they did what they did badly. Right. And that caused, that makes it like really, really hard to do a sort of like actually Fear of the Dark is one of the best Iron Maiden albums because it's it, you're just stacking it up against records that are doing almost the same thing, but in a like substantially better way. Yeah, like we definitely have now the the two big Iron Maiden camps and of of Brave New World forward and then the Golden Age of Iron mm-hmm. Maiden. And there there's arguments for either one, and I think either side recognizes that they're different enough that there's obviously over a lot of overlap, but there's a lot of difference. You're like, okay, we are talking about two different taste palettes there. But yeah. no one goes to bat for no prayer for the dying. <laughs> No one's like the tail gunner actually is the best of their airplane trilogy, which is a really <laughs> fucked up and funny thing that they have. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I think we should get, now get into the bridge between those two uh, fandoms and the, the sort of not just in terms of its chronological history, but also Langdon. I know that you have a really compelling case about the aesthetic bridge from the golden age to the reunion era, which is the 90s uh, Blaze Bailey material. Um, also, not very well loved. I haven't met anyone who's like, you know, Virtual Nine, that's the one, or anything like that. Um, but I, people seem to just kind of like view it as like a, a sad misfortune rather than like a betrayal in the way of like, for example, what Joseph brought up in Insane Anger or anything like that. Like it was very clearly like, you know, new singer, new guitarist maiden. were kind of just in the wilderness during this period uh, is at least my interpretation. How do you two feel about the, the two blaze Bailey records? All right. I'm going to put it out there. Blaze Bailey. And this is like a, this is a scorching hot take. Unlike my Metallica is an important band take. Um, that this was is, ice cold. This is so cold. Sub zero. <laughs> Deep beyond the permafrost. Um, Blaze Bailey, uh, good singer, tried hard. That is my mm. that is my scorching hot take. I think Blaze Bailey is not the problem. <laughs> In like all of those songs, Blaze is not the problem, actually. No, I, I agree completely. It's you you can almost Early on in in the uh, in the reunion era, they played a couple of those songs uh, live still with Bruce. They still do. And you they can still you, do. You can hear that it's like, oh, you never wrote for Blaze. That's kind of fucked up the more that I think about it. Like, you wrote with Bruce in mind and then went, Blaze Bailey, you have a, you have a high tenor, right? And he's like, no, I have a, I have a baritone. I'm like, good, so I'm going to need you to sing right up here. He's like, I, I, <laughs> I literally can't do that. That's it's literally outside of my range. You're like, good, all right, here are the lyrics and here's the... The, the guide melody. And be like, I, I, I can't, guys, you're leaving. I can't do that. <laughs> Just left him fucking high and dry. Yeah, no, his um his stuff in Wolfsbane and then his stuff with his solo band after are, are really, really good. It's just the band did him fucking dirty. I'm not sure they even know that they did. Like, I don't think it was deliberate. Like, they were hazing him like Jason Newstead, Newstead style. I think they just legit didn't. They're like, no, you have to play the riff lower for him to sing on that. And they're like, I don't know, but the riff goes here. That's how this I play it. <laughs> the fundamental problem with Iron Maiden, a band I love, but the fundamental problem is Steve Harris knows three chords. 
in, right. in, in three hand positions, and that's it. That's all he knows. So if you if you don't excel in those, it doesn't work. And Blaze Bailey does does not. Even though Blaze Bailey can write a fucking hook. Uh, Sign of the Cross, good song, I think. Yeah, I I, I kind of like the Klansman too. In it, like that one's high. Admittedly. You know, that's a, a song that absolutely was like Bruce Dickinson should have been singing this. There's a lot of it where it feels like, yes, it, it's Iron Maiden refusing to change their fundamental sound in order to fit their new singer and also having gone out and gotten a singer that doesn't fit their fundamental sound. Like I know from reading uh, Lifting Shadows, the Dream Theater historical uh, biography I, I think they Iron Maiden wanted to get James Labrie at one point as like a potential yes. singer because oh. okay go on you, you, no, you say no, that I love that I, I think it it makes a ton more sense than Blaze Bailey because if you just get James Labrie to not do his like you know singing over soft rock stuff which is honestly Dream Theater's fault and not his if you listen to any of the James Labrie solo stuff. It's like, he wants to sing way heavier music than dream theater makes him sing. (laughs) And he can do just like the high, like before food poisoning, like the funny thing with James Labrie is you're, I'm always talking about him the way that I talk about like Penny Hardaway, where it's like, well, if he didn't get injured, you know, (laughs) he'd be the goat. (laughs) But like pre food poisoning, James Labrie absolutely could have been a great cornball singer in a band like Iron Maiden but instead they went out and got this kind of like deep voiced husky baritone singer and it and instead of you know tuning their guitars down or trying to mat like change with the times in order to suit that they sort of stuck to their guns and it did everyone a disservice in the process and I, I think sometimes when we think about those records we think about them from the listener perspective which obviously that's that's a totally fine one. That's there's nothing wrong with that. But from a critical perspective, we have to think we have to think about like compositionally what songwriters were in the band versus weren't. So the band mm-hmm. loses Adrian Smith off of the back of uh, No Prayer for the Dying because he's like that. This sucks. I'm gonna go. Uh, they take on Yannick Ayers right after that for Fear of the Dark. After Fear of the Dark, Bruce leaves and they bring Blaze on. And this shift in the songwriting idiom basically leaves. Steve Harris is the main songwriter, like, like the sole main songwriter. Like they used to split the duties, um, maybe a like, little bit. yeah, like, it, it wasn't, it was still like mostly Steve, but you'd get lots and lots of input from Dave Marine, especially Adrian Smith, Adrian Smith, basically like somewhere in time and seventh son were his babies, um, where he mm. was contributing a lot of different ideas to that. He was leading a lot of the different songwriting. That's why I was so pissed off when they went. Uh, in the other direction in the 90s. So basically you get on those Blaze uh, Blaze Bailey records are really the prototype for the songwriting of the reunion era. This is part of why, uh, this is covered in part by the fact that like anyone who's done the reading on Brave New World knows that something like up to 60% of the songs there were written during the... Uh, not Virtual 9, The X Factor, Cor- right. corny naming. Uh, why do you put the numbers in the name? That's corny. <laughs> but uh, they were written during the X Factor sessions, sort of, and obviously all the songwriting of the reunion era has been built off of, fuck, everyone loves Brave New World. Let's keep doing this. But that that has these longer roots that go back. This is where you get like the sort of uh, the cliche of what a Steve Harris song kind of, 
feels like where you have like instrumental intro, slightly faster, soft intro with vocals, loud verse, long chorus, loud verse, long chorus, even longer instrumental break, like long chorus return to the instrumental, the first of the two instrumental intros, something along those lines. And somehow that takes about 10 minutes. Yeah. You know, Um, and sometimes it slaps. Sometimes it slaps. Like again, the Klansman. Great song that, like, if it had been really, if if the Klansman had been on Fear of the Dark, I think like that would have tipped the balance and such that people would talk about Fear of the Dark as like on the lower rung, but on the same sort of zone as the '80s stuff. Like as much as Joe is a big, big proponent, I've worked with Joe in lots of capacities. Ian's worked with Joe in lots of capacities. Generally speaking, Joe is a big, big proponent of the hard-hitting, hooky song, regardless of whether it's heavy or not. Like, you know, you can have, like, a really hooky death metal, hooky grindcore song, hooky black metal, hooky traditional heavy metal. Ian definitely leans a little bit more towards the the more outro and proggy stuff. I'm all the way out in the fucking hinterlands because I have broken my brain and turned it to soup. We all like the stuff the other people bring up. It's just our preferences sort of are on a slider. Um, But... I think we all kind of agree that, like, the great Iron Maiden album, like, capitalizing the first letters of all that, has a little bit of each of those. Like, yeah, like, mm. Power Slave without Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and the title track is not potentially one of the greatest heavy metal records of all time, but with it, it is. Yeah. Likewise, you can't take off Aces High and Two Minutes to Midnight off, off the front of that. Like, it needs that kind of balance. And uh, the 90s records seemingly gave up that entirely and then uh alternatively the blaze bailey ones were largely uh what if every song was 10 minutes long but also like you kind of hated that <laughs> about it <laughs> right. they don't earn the 10 minutes is like i i think the fundamental problem how many and times whether... does he say future real in that song <laughs> and that's not even one of the 10 minute ones yeah <laughs> it's way too many well here's where i here's where i come in with this is this is like one of my i'm going to like plant my straight mic stand down at the front of the stage and point at the audience and say you know this is true okay heavy metal unless you're slayer or slipknot even slipknot should not be a cd focused format because mm. 75 minutes of a CD album, hard, actually. I think the CD format is really what kneecapped Metallica. I agree. Yeah, I would agree 100%. And I think think it kneecapped Maiden. I think that's actually a really good under-discussed problem for almost... Because, like, when when your call dropped last time we talked, I mentioned this, this kind of, like recurrent issue with like bands that had their heyday in the eighties, all for the most part stumble in the nineties. And there's a lot of like potential like scapegoats for that. You could say grunge, you could say new metal, but I think like speaking materially, like the format change from vinyl to CD just absolutely changes like the, the compositional style and the limitations and the strengths of a lot of these bands. Like if you turn a lot of these bloated nineties records from, you know, being 80 minutes long to being 45, you could probably turn them into significantly better records as a result. Yes. That's my take. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm a big fan of longer records. And I think a lot of times people reveal, 
that when when they speak like this, that a lot of times it's a coded form of like justifying nostalgia that it's like, well, the records I grew up with are better. Why is that? And then you find some kind of these are the couple instances where I definitely think it's true. I mean, who hasn't said that? load and reload have enough good material that you could make one solid 50 minute record between both cds that's a pretty common take that's not wildly out there good lord we did not need nearly two and a half hours good lord <laughs> like mm-hmm. no even metallica figured that out that's why they saved reload for another album and then people right? were like you need more now and they're like uh well we do have more <laughs> Mm, it includes okay maybe our worst song i hate fuel i hate i, I, I hate love fuel. fuel it's a great fucking song. hate it no <laughs> fuel is a wonderful song fuel is perfect at being what it fuel is for the same reason that break shit is actually a great song limp biscuit is maybe not actually a good band but break shit perfectly encapsulates the single feeling that it is absolutely aiming to encapsulate and that feeling is the desire to pick your keyboard up and break it on your boss's face with it. Okay, okay. so as a, big pro- as a big proponent of Garrett's three critical questions, I cannot refute the break stuff thesis. <laughs> it's the same thing, but it's I want to fishtail my car out of my driveway. Yeah, but I never want Metallica to do that. Metallica is Ride the Lightning. They are Ride the Lightning. Ride the Lightning's a living man, and I'm in love with him, and he's my husband. Uh, we're getting a bit uh, lost from the uh, the source of our conversation here. It's hard to focus on Iron Maiden when we when we're thinking about Metallica. God, I love you, Metallica. <laughs> it's also hard to cool think take. about Iron Maiden when we're talking about their '90s stuff. That's uh, true. I, That's true. I, I do want to maybe use this opportunity to tease out some of the weird ways that the Iron Maiden's influence started to spread during this fallow period for them, um, because. You know, obviously there are a lot of the other heavy metal bands that are kind of following in their wake while they're doing their golden age run. You know, we've we've talked about Metallica, we've talked about the new wave of British heavy metal, and you could, you know, we mentioned Blind Guardian, and that allows us to sort of like group in speed metal and Mm -hmm. Dream Theater. We brought up oh the whole progressive metal thing. Yeah, but what what interests me here is like who was doing the good Iron Maiden stuff during the '90s? Is it's like the Swedish bands? You know, I know that Langdon is not a fan of melodic death metal. I think it's really interesting <laughs> that like who picked up the torch to keep Maiden style guitar work in heavy metal when a lot of the scene was kind of like swinging in this more you know death metal oriented direction but also the groove metal oriented direction neither of which were particularly maiden-ish is there's this interesting thing that happens where the melodic death metal scene kind of becomes the torchbearer for throwing a third on it as like a, a foundational part of heavy metal which then interestingly leads into you know the american metalcore scene and whatnot which is a strange place for the maiden thing to eventually end up in but i just wanted to sort of like Drop that in there and see if y'all have any feelings about Iron Maiden's broader influence in metal. Throwing a third on it for what it's worth, readers, you may not know Ian or may not have been in turn-based combat against demons with him, but I have. And uh, throwing a third on it is his Magatsukichi move. That is his overdrive. Um, <laughs> I've been playing way too much Shinigami Tensei Five. 
Um, <laughs> game bangs, by the way. That's that game's fire. I'm not a Persona yeah. guy, but I love the SMT mainline series. Fucking fire. It fucks. Um, you could listen to a lot of Iron Maiden while playing it. It would make perfect sense. Absolutely. Um, and since I don't. Yeah, I, Ian's <laughs> right. Ian's right in that, like, the the In Flames pitch. Specifically, I think In Flames is the band to talk about with this. Yeah. Like, the classic In Flames sound pitch is, what if Iron Maiden, but 90s tough guy hardcore dude singing, but singing about feelings? Maybe mm-hmm. they're feelings? Are they? What are, the, what are these lyrics at? What is the jester race? I know there's a correct. I know that there is a correct answer, but the correct answer does not actually make sense. So let's disregard it. Yeah, that's that's in flames is fucking pitch until they become a rap metal band, right? (laughs) That was a weird turn as well. That's a weird turn. Well, the interesting thing is even the the rap metal bands start doing Iron Maiden ish stuff eventually. Like there are two different Papa Roach songs on their first record that are built out of unused Iron Maiden or like you know, just like barely used Iron Maiden riffs. Like there's the one that's like all just fight club quotes uh, right. based off of a, a riff from Genghis Khan. <laughs> and Last Resort, I believe, is also a... Uh, a Last a, a Resort's diff- the one built from uh, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, you're right. And the other one is built from the... The, the other Papa Roach song is based off the first track on the first Iron Maiden record. Both of them, it's like these two like hit songs from a new metal band are you know, repurposed Iron Maiden material, which I thought was always kind of weird, but well, there's, there's another parallel trend, which people don't talk about, but I do think needs to be brought up is that the pop punk bands, which let's yes. be honest, were big pop punk after Brave New World. There was that like five, six year period where screamo pop punk is the undisputed king. Next yeah, to it's, like, it's, it's the king of the pop rock world world, right? You've got to be Jay-Z or Eminem to box against it. Like right, Beyonce yeah. still got to recover from leaving Destiny's Child to have enough mana to summon something that can hurt it, and by then it's died of old age because pop punk can live for six fucking months apparently. But those bands love Maiden, love Noah. Forty One sometimes had riffs. I don't like them as band personally. That's just my personal thing. But sometimes they had riffs. All American Readers guy wears a Saxon wheels of steel like long sleeve. In the fucking, like, their big breakout song video. I remember, like, what? seeing that and being like, yeah, go look it up, dude. I'm going to look tr- that up. That's I'm going to tell my, my one co-worker who fucking loves All American Rejects and now Extreme Metal because of me. I'm going to be like, <laughs> I have to give you one point. Like, <laughs> they love their Wheels of Steel, baby. That's, that's right. a hype record. That's a that's hype the, record. The other examples I think of a lot are like Coheed and Cambria have a yeah. ton of oh, yeah. Iron Maiden in them. Great band. Especially that one record, the... Oh God. Good Apollo? The second Good Apollo is basically an Iron Maiden album. Yeah. The the second like shorter one where they got Josh Freese to drum on it, like mm-hmm. low-key, terrific Iron Maiden album. My Chemical Romance, also a ton of Maiden in their lead guitar parts. They got so and many the, riffs on their records. They got so many riffs. Everyone's always talking about DVDs. this Gerard guy. We don't talk about those riffs on those solos. Those are some hype fucking solos. My Chem, good band. Good band. Is that a hot take? No. No, that's that's mean. not. The hot take is that uh, Black Parade is nowhere near their top record. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that. It's absolutely three cheers is the the one to listen to. Yeah, that's right. Like, that's right. I like sweet cheers. Yeah, that's my one. Um, that's right. AFI. <laughs> 
besides AFI. besides like Loki putting Ray I and Ami in the Girls Not Gray video, um, <laughs> uh, Black Seals of Sunset is a goddamn D beat album. Yeah. No. Oh I'm, yeah. Well, those, those guys come from like actual hardcore like yeah. that's like a sort of a legit band secretly um if anyone talks yeah, shit on afi i throw hands i love that band yeah i love the modern stuff great. fuck them i'll fight you anybody should. i agree there hasn't been a new Bauhaus record anyway go on we're, we're really getting out of power no, i i i really like this though because the point is that iron maiden starts to become something that is bigger than themselves and even as we were discussing previously, how big Iron Maiden themselves are, it starts to bleed out into all of these other areas of pop music in a really interesting way. Langdon, you've got something to say. So the thing I've been thinking about a lot, so uh, friend of the channel, um, Opeth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> friend to no one. Um, yeah, no, that's legit. Um, it's probably corny to say now, but I don't give a fuck. One of my literal absolute favorite groups of all time, regardless of genre. I still love the new stuff. Fucking God tier. Fucking God tier. But around, admittedly, their greatest record, Still Life, the number one thing Michael Ackerfeld has said over and over was influential on the guitar writing for that was Maiden. That's why there's so many harmonized guitars on that record. It's also why he made it blatantly a progressive rock record for all the dipshits who think that that was like a new thing that they did. How the fuck are people going to say the prog rock turn was like out of nowhere when you have Benighted and Face of Melinda on the same goddamn album? Whatever. The weird thing about that album is that that Serenity Painted Death is a Pantera song, which is a good thing. Pantera had sick riffs. It's just a shame that they were all so racist. And we also see the more adventurous black metal bands around that time, like Around the mid to late 90s is when Isan starts picking up a lot more Iron Maiden stuff in Emperor, which, again, chuds mm-hmm. like to say that it's bad. It's not. It's good. Emperor never put out a bad record, and then Isan never put out, never put a bad LP out. I didn't like the EPs that much. That's that's fine, though. He's I, allowed. I, I did. For what it's worth, Isan has said that he learned guitar by getting a, I think it's Peace of Mind. His mom got him a Peace yeah. of Mind tab book. And so literally, like... Adrian Smith is the origin of his understanding of this is how my hand makes chord. And so it's mm-hmm. like all the, all the like really adventurous, really cool black metal bands, which again, you will have heard about this somewhere else. But if this is the first place you've heard it, good. The reason why second wave black metal clones are so annoying and weird is because every second wave black metal band became a much weirder band over time. Every single one, every single one. And yeah, the big thing by the mid to late 90s was throwing in more traditional heavy metal vibes. Like, that's where you have Fenris going off to form Isengard, where he gets into that. Immortal um, starts doing uh, their thing, which is just Iron Maiden, but frostbitten and evil. Uh, God, I love you, Immortal. Frogs playing uh, Seventh Son of a Seventh Son. That's their formula. Which is amazing. (laughs) It's fucking perfect. So yeah, it's like, and this I think is actually important for my next point which is about the reunion era yes iron maiden totally peeped where i was going with this iron maiden suddenly becomes aware that they don't need to be iron maiden anymore they don't need to give us more golden age shit this is the biggest complaint about the reunion era they aren't recapturing their golden years they write different they play different the songwriting is different but do we need more of that golden age stuff we even have by this point traditional heavy metal bands being formed in their wake that are like, like I love crystal Viper. 
great goddamn band. They're basically just giving us more Maiden riffs. That's great. But when they're doing that, and other bands are doing this so well, why would the band that did that not follow their flights of fancy? They've already sort of conquered the mental space of the heavy metal world. May I step in here and give just a brief, very small tangent? We do be loving them tangents. That's very much the house style, apparently, so go ahead. Well, I I just want to say, if you haven't heard of them, there's a band from Canada called Unleash the Archers. Mm. God, I fucking love that band. Mm. Their Mm. their singer, Mm. Britney Slays, is literally the only time this has ever happened. But I did go to see them when Apex, their previous album, came out, uh, which is, I think, sort of like their power slave i think the new one abyss is sort of like them them doing seventh sun it's more synthy more radio-y and and the one previously is is like kind of this like naughty earthy k-n naughty not naughty (laughs) because it's a it's a femme fronted power metal band you need to clarify that when i saw them play apex front to back i didn't i barely liked that band but i just like stayed for one song i was like i'll stay for one more I'll stay for one more. I'll stay for one more. And suddenly it was 1.30 a.m. On a, on a work night. And I was like, oh, what the fuck have I done? But I remember like watching her sing. And that's the only time ever in my life that I've had that little voice in my head say, this is what it was like seeing Bruce Dickinson in 1984. Enjoy this. Mm-hmm. So of all those, Crystal Viper, great. But I just want to say, like, I think that's the only band of those that I've seen live that actually makes me do the whoa thing anyway yeah. please continue so yes bruce dickinson and adrian smith both rejoin iron maiden for an album called brave new world uh that comes out in what is it is it literally 2000 or is it 2001 it's two, i think it's it 2000. 2000 2000 okay this record whips ass. It is so much better than it has any right to be considering the average age of its participants. But like, holy cow, is it good? Legit, it's uh, my favorite one. I'm not I willing can't to argue say with best. That. <laughs> I think there's an argument for best, but I'm not going to like stake that is my favorite. And we are a big camp. We are a big camp. Surprisingly big. Yeah. Um, it's not my favorite, but it is one of those records where whenever a song of it like randomly comes on, if I've got like my iPod on shuffle or something, my first thought will be, I don't have 13 minutes to spare. And my second thought will be, fuck it, out of the silent planet. Let's do it. Let's do it. I'm yeah. here. This is fun. He's just going to say the same fucking word 20 fucking times for five minutes, and I'm going to like it. Speaking from a drummer's perspective, I think it is hands down Nicka McBrain's best drumming performance. Yep. Uh, which is wild considering how good he yeah. had been during his entirety run, uh, entirety of his run with Iron Maiden. Uh, he does, like, the title track is kind of famous for having this one drum part that you listen to it and you're like, oh, that's a, a double bass part on an Iron Maiden song. That's weird. And then you listen closer, closer to it and you're like, oh, wait, the hi-hat's closed. He's playing that with one foot. <laughs> it's just Stupid, difficult stuff on drums that he pulls off, but not even just like the kind of endurance test stuff, but it's the least typical of his playing style of any of the records. All of the choices that he makes feel entirely unique to that album. Even on the other reunion stuff, he kind of just goes back into his bag. But on Brave New World, it's like, oh, this is almost a different guy playing drums on this album. And it's 
very exciting. One of the great things about it is they briefly forget how to reincorporate Adrian Smith in the best possible way. They clearly <laughs> have they clearly have this material. So as I mentioned before, they clearly have this material left over from the X Factor, and they're like, "Well, it's already written. We had the two guitar parts. Like, I don't. There's not really room for." And he does the most brilliant, most Iron Maiden thing. Why don't I just kind of solo over the whole song? They're like, what? They're like, yeah, what if I just, you just mix me a little bit quieter, but I'm just low-key cutting a song-length solo. Sometimes I'm playing exactly the vocal melody. Sometimes I'm harmonizing with the vocal. Sometimes I'm playing Mm -hmm. my own little lick. Like, so you wind up getting this natural lushness that, Get is sort of like the hallmark of peak era progressive rock, uh, especially the early stuff, which, uh, slight history lesson, that stuff grew basically out of psychedelic pop and psychedelic rock. And one of the big, one of the big things there is that you have the backbone of the song gets narrowed and narrowed and narrowed until it's eventually like these two guys are holding the song together and everyone else is sort of like floating around on top of it. And the thing that makes it tricky is you just learn the weird improvisational thing that you did on top. But ultimately, it's still when you're jamming, Yes wasn't sitting down going, how can I make the most fucked up sounding thing in the world? They were just like, oh, that's a really sick like solo that you're doing over it. Learn that. That's the guitar part now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and they basically did the same thing here, where it's like, it's not, none of the moving parts are all that complex. It's about how you've layered them. And it just, oh God, it's, it's, the, it's a fucking blooming onion of delicious flavor. Outback Steakhouse. (laughs) There's one song beyond The Wicker Man, which is the one I mentioned with the previously very difficult drum part that we need to talk about specifically. Uh, I know Blood Brothers is kind of like the fan favorite from this record. That's mine. Um, It's interesting because I'm looking up the the track listing and the the writing credits and like that's the only solo Harris song. So that's another example of like the Steve Harris formula is it's exactly how you think it's going to go, but it like nails it when it's it exactly works. Exactly what people want. <laughs> That's also like that song is great, but it it signals to me this is the weakness of reunion Iron Maiden, and the, the the thing that I don't like is if peak Iron Maiden is we are going to make Bruce Dickinson do a soccer chant. Mm-hmm. Somehow, when he rejoins, that becomes. Iron Maiden is going to do a Yoho beer drinking song. Right. Pub just, jams. Pub jams. It's just guys with one elbow, like fused out, swinging <laughs> their mugs. Blood Brothers. And I'm like, it, this Not is fun. Wrong. And I do it. It's fun. <laughs> I do it. It's just, I need more FIFA energy. Someone give them a broken PlayStation 2. It must be in a dorm room somewhere. That's that, just that is I the want, FIFA right? experience. That sure. is the FIFA experience. I, I I know exactly what you're talking about, which is it, I've always had this thought of you can sort of tell that Iron Maiden are refining their sound to their increasing size of their audience in some ways. Like if you listen to, for example, uh, Phantom of the Opera, and it has that like long build up coming out of the quiet part. And you can tell that that shit popped off so severely live that they start incorporating that kind of thing into all of their songs. And by Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you're like, holy shit, they 
turned this into an art form. It's you, like incredibly beautiful. When it hits but, so hard, you accidentally nut so hard that you pass out and you fall down and your head strikes the corner of your desk and it punctures your skull and all your blood falls out and they find you, you're dead. It's embarrassing. But that's just how powerful that shit has become. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> and by the reunion stuff, I feel like they... they nailed it in its to to some extent because you know they do rock and rio and they do all these like they become a global i know i've said this in the first half of that them becoming a global band through the power of like power slave and whatnot but by this point they're playing the most ludicrously large size venues that they ever will from this point on and like iron maiden's size as a stadium slash arena band i think is built off the power of brave new world and you can tell that they're kind of writing for those rooms in that they're giving people really big really repetitive choruses to sing as a group and that can have hit or miss effects is i think what joseph is kind of saying i think it hits it hits a lot it's just i don't need a hit of it every five years no oh, I, I don't do. need i don't need a 75 minute hit of it every five years oh we're gonna get into that we're gonna get into that bro we're gonna get into that (laughs) i'm happy to have them do it so what's what's funny is we have we have brave new world it's sort of like this unimpeachable classic everyone everyone you you may point at it as the beginning of them doing some shit that will start to not pay off but everyone agrees that one pays off the one that i find most interesting in a certain way is dance of death which for me minus the opening track Wildest Dreams, I cut it. I cut, it's not I, that good. Literally, when I listen to the record, I start on track two. But if you skip track one, that record is exactly as good as Brave New World. I don't know where the fuck people are like, this album's not that good. Rainmaker? Are you fucking kidding me? You don't like Rainmaker? Passchendaele? Passchendaele is so good. That song is amazing. I lose my goddamn mind. Dance of Death is the great undiscovered made record. If you're like a Agreed. casual Iron Maiden fan and you are listening to this podcast and you're like, mm, po- post Brave New World Maiden, I don't know, is there one to pick up? The one to pick up is Dance of Death. You know you've got the right one because the cover looks really bad. Like See, look for I, the worst cover you can think of, that's the one. Yes. I, I think this is actually a point, it, which is that I think that there are at least – and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's this idea that like a, a matter of life and death is what you're describing, Joseph, which is that it's like, oh, this is the secret, like real heads know this is the good undiscovered late period Iron Maiden record and that Dance of Death is not. And it's literally because of the album covers. Yes. Because the yes. cover of A Matter of Life and Death looks so sick. It's and the cover fire. of <laughs> Dance of Death looks brain-bendingly stupid absolute dog shit we will concentrated all the dog shit on the cover this time (laughs) right the the story goes that the digital artist brought them a mock-up of the album cover and that they just said yeah print it and i guess multiple times the album artist like said no 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 this is a prototype i need to like actually make it like no it looks good it looks like a video game Mm -hmm. (laughs) and then he's like that's the problem okay and it's already produced You've already printed it with my name in the yeah. booklet. I, Fuck. The interesting thing about late period Iron Maiden in general is they've got a certain kind of like Clint Eastwood directing movies energy to them where they're Absolutely. like first take, best take. That's not wrong. <laughs> we're not, we're not going to master this record. We're not going to like 
uh, quantize the synths on their most recent album, you know, yeah, we'll just throw in this like really shoddily put together space rock thing at the start of an otherwise very different song on the final frontier. There's this sort of like looseness, which I think is charming if you if they weren't like a band that were making as much money as they do. You know what I mean? Um, but it is just kind of like the thing to get into with the, their late period is I do get the sense that there's not a lot of quality control and that the parts that are good are just like pure good Iron Maiden emanating out from them. That's maybe uncharitable, but that's how I feel about a lot of the post-reunion stuff. There's certainly a lack of self-awareness on those albums. And I think the key, the the way to see the lack of self-awareness is the fact that they've never played Montsegur live. And I've mm. published three or four out al- three or four articles on various sometimes large websites where the entire purpose of me publishing like a 20,000 word piece in Iron Maiden is simply for me to get enough people to listen to Montsegur on Spotify so they'll play it. That's yeah, on that's Bucks. On whips. Brother, that's a holy task. And I, I appreciate that. I want that so bad. I'm um, deeply Dance of Death pilled. Um, <laughs> dance of Death pill. Oh my God. Which, that needs uh, to be, that's your new vanity Twitter handle, please. It's, uh, so it, 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 we get this mysterious rebuking of later Maiden that starts around Dance of Death. And this isn't to say that there aren't sometimes slippages of song quality. Um, but the reaction strikes me more. And this even comes from younger people. It tends to come from this almost vague sense of embarrassment that we simultaneously get, like, wire bands coming back and just put, like, we hear the constant dumb bullshit about, like, oh, ACDC's a bad band because they keep putting out the same record. Wrong! That record fucks. You just are a virgin. I'm sorry. Um, I'm too drunk and horny to not love ACDC. Um, I don't even drink anymore, but I feel drunk when I hear them. But then, likewise, we get a band like Iron Maiden that literally is consistently changing over time and doing so solely for themselves. That's sort of, it's a round dance of death that it suddenly becomes like gauche to be like modern maiden is good. Like you can't even say it's good. It suddenly becomes like, no, it doesn't measure up to the golden age stuff. It doesn't, which is this really annoying tendency of, and I mentioned this before, of people who don't listen to the record that's playing. They listen to the record that they've told themselves they're going to get and find fault with the record that is playing for not being that. Which is just, mm-hmm. one, asinine. Two, if you're a professional and you do that, fucking embarrassing. Like, embarrassing. you should be disqualified from your work. Um, I, I agree. However, let's call a spade a spade. Um, <laughs> diminishing returns. Not mm-hmm. wrong. It, it, they're diminishing returns. Like, I'm here saying, you know, dance of death, good. I stand by that statement. Matter of life and death, weirdly overrated. It is overrated because, and this is why, and this is maybe the smartest thing Iron Maiden has done in the past 20 years, they figured out that they could have a remote-controlled Eddie tank on stage. And that just sold them extra records because they're like, right. why not have a, a tank I do where want, Iron Maiden, yeah. our stage shows so good. I, like People yell for them to play songs from that record that they probably don't even like. Just for them to do the wrong, tank Joe. Again. Wrong, Joe. What the fuck, Joe? That record bangs. Joe, I it, listened to that record for our bang. piece. It bangs. It I was like, does bang. I was like, worst song on this album. They're all fire. Like <laughs> it, 
it yeah. does bang, but it doesn't bang as hard as Dance of Death. And I like Dance of Death, and Dance of Death doesn't bang as hard as Brave New World. And and it, it, it there is a there is the Half Life is the nucleus of the atom is shedding its protons. Yeah, I, but I, like, I, I can that's make not that a controversial same, thing to say. I can make that same comment about their classic era, which is the thing that I find really weird when people who really love to hate on the modern stuff do like who in the who in their right mind goes up and is like gangland that's a number one maiden track we aren't talking about gangland enough no we're not this is the thing though is that from number of the beast peace of mind power slave somewhere in time seventh son of a seventh son they're building towards something where i think what joseph is saying is that brave new world through senjutsu which i think we should kind of talk about as a chunk yeah because iron maiden themselves are so much more codified in the place in their career during that entire span that we don't really need to differentiate is diminishing returns. I would argue that Senjutsu is better than Book of Souls, but I don't I haven't listened to either of them enough to really say if that's true. I will admit, even as I'm a huge defender of this era, this is my favorite era of the band. I don't think it's the best era. Um, I think because it wouldn't have existed without their golden age, but it just it mm-hmm. hits me uh, like they're they're playing for me alone which i love i'm very selfish I'll, I'll take that but i do think there are the slight period adjustments because at, something happened after a matter of life and death i'm not sure exactly what but those a brave new world sure to, <laughs> maybe well, um i i would say if there is something it's that they did the somewhere back in time tour And I knew that they were like, they talked about this in interviews, which is that before matter of life and death, they planned to do a tour where they focused extremely heavily on the new record. They played it all the way through all the way through, which they did. And then do a like golden age tour, which is somewhere back in time. As we said previously, all three of us went to that tour. And I think the the idea is that they would call it quits after that. I think that's the unstated thing, which is that like, well, what are they going to do next? Like a 90s era tour? Of course not. <laughs> like you do the new album, you do the the classics, and then that's it. Yeah, and I think instead, everyone kind of expected that. Right. The next record is even called The Final Frontier. I at least thought at the moment, like, oh, this is it. This is the last Maiden record. Same. I and, mean, that's and that's where I think that that theme of every record now feels like the final one is... This is going to go differing lengths with different people, and I acknowledge that straight up. But that's sort of the big credit for me. They're in their victory lap, and we can fault mm-hmm. them for not doing the bolt thrower of, God, what a perfect end to a career. The, your final song is When Cannons Fade, maybe one of the best death metal songs, period. And then you're like, you keep going for a decade and you don't cut a single new song ever because you're like, no, we gave our career the best ending. We're just going to keep playing until we don't like each other. Or we have the second uh, option, which is they become an eternal like stadium touring band that never produces new material, which frankly, I'd find that embarrassing, especially for such an album oriented world as heavy metal. Like there's certain genres where you can definitely get away with that. But I find it hard to fault them for having the wherewithal to one, consistently make new records and two, to consistently have the the fuck you attitude of like, we make records for us. You buy them. Like, I don't care that you don't like Book of Souls. I don't care that Bruce wrote a 20 minute song that frankly isn't that great. Fuck it. 
we're Iron Maiden. You know, that's going on the record, and you can suck our dicks. I'm like, I find this, I find this charming. Totally. I feel that. I think it's interesting to draw the parallel for the last band that I had you on the podcast to talk about, Langdon, which is Rush, who also mm. like gave themselves a finalized last record that they yeah. kind of wrote with the intention of being their final statement. The difference is that Rush wanted to call it quits on playing live as well. Whereas Iron Maiden, I mean, it's I don't know them personally, of course, but it seems to me that they love to play live, that they that's kind of their bread and butter, even though they are album oriented, as you said, the Iron Maiden legacy is so tied into seeing them live and the crowd response and like what the, the songs become when the nation of Brazil sings them back, you know, or like the people of India or wherever Iron Maiden play literally everywhere. And them deciding like, okay, we're going to keep playing live. So let's also just keep working on new music like that. There is something that is like even more punk to, you know, yeah. to, for, to them doing book of souls and senjutsu on those terms. It's definitely not corny. They're not being like, Oh, we're, we're the greatest hits band. We, and like, I don't have to love the material to admire that they're like, we're a working band. We we started on our terms. You happened to fall in love with us, but we we play entirely on our own terms for our entire career. That's, that made us huge, and you're allowed to not like us, but this has never been your band. This has, too, it's always been Steve Harris's band. So we get a lot of times where it's like we project a fantasy Iron Maiden and we go, why didn't you give us that? And they're like, we did for over a decade. You still own all those records. We don't want to make those records again. We play those records live every fucking year. Like mm -hmm. they're going to go into their graves and like their corpses are going to automatically be playing those riffs. So it's like I can understand them. This is where I find like the the satellite 19 i think it was called the like the weird hyper proggy opening to final frontier i fucking right, love right. that and i almost love it more that it goes into a song unrelated to it and it never comes back uh we got all these like weird wonderful little like what the fuck are you doing and they're like i don't know i'm iron maiden i can do whatever i want suck it sure yeah yeah, yeah. The, the annoying thing the annoying thing langdon isn't actually anything iron maiden's doing i don't think besides talking about how they're perfect that shit that's sucks. A, that shit that's sucks. an annoying thing that Iron Maiden actually did. Um, Bruce Dickinson writing an autobiography wherein he told you literally nothing about his life. That's an annoying thing that actually happened, right? But, yeah. like, the the annoying thing about Senjutsu is not actually anything Iron Maiden did. The annoying thing about Senjutsu is you reading any end-of-the-year list from a metal publication or metal Jason publication, and Senjutsu's on it in the top 20, when... Has Iron Maiden done 20 albums? I don't think they think Senjutsu's in their top 20. I don't think they rank their own shit, but I don't think they would do that. Like, and why are we adulating them when they don't care about adulation? Like you said, they're a band on their own They really terms. don't. They don't <laughs> send promos out. They don't care. Like, they're not doing Senjutsu for you to think Senjutsu's a masterpiece. They're doing Senjutsu for them to dress Eddie like a samurai and bonk people on the head with an inflatable sword. Well, here's the That's thing about... Doing. Here's the thing about heavy metal that I love and that some people hate, but it is endemically part of it. Every metalhead loves heavy metal the way that a 14-year-old loves heavy metal. It never progresses yes. beyond that. This I find actually wonderful and pure. Like when – obviously we've all talked about – we've all written about actually how 
the metal community can steep itself in some really toxic, sometimes fucking evil bullshit. Uh, we all have our pet blacklists. We all have open blacklists. This is, this is like, it's an unfortunate reality of the space. But the one of the things I find really charming is the intense, like, real, like, I, I think of Rob Halford more like a saint, which, as a Marxist, I probably shouldn't do, but it's just like, I don't care. That man saying sinner, that man saying dreamer deceiver, that man saying uh, fucking painkiller, like... Same with, like, we wind up seeing the same adulation of Lemmy. Like, Motorhead puts out the same record their entire career. Anytime there was a radical change, it was like, now they sound a little bit more like Thin Lizzy, and that guy was fired. Um, <laughs> but, like, but who gives a fuck? Are you going to look me in the eye and be like, no, bad magic didn't fucking rock my world? Of course it did, because you love Lemmy the way that a child loves Santa. And that's that's what I see when people are ranking Iron Maiden. People turn one, especially for such an underground focused world. People get really up in their fucking tizzy over year end lists and be like, "Why is that number seventeen instead?" And I'm like, for for all these people who are like, "This shit doesn't matter." I listen to underground records and underground labels because I love it. It's for the love and the passion. They suddenly become ultra cynical about. Oh, it's unimaginable that metalheads who make their living writing about metal also love Iron Maiden. That's got to be a conspiracy. Like, no, I I love Iron Maiden the way that a child does. <laughs> uh, people who oppose fascism don't understand that democracy involves math, right? And, then, and that, like, math works in a way such that the thing you love the most doesn't automatically win. That's actually fascism. But we, putting that aside for one second. There, there, is, uh, there is the one slight digression that's related to what you said. And you actually handled this very capably on Facebook when talking to someone that I actually, like, screen capped your thing. That we've all dealt with year-end stuff. We've all written for publications. You guys have edited publications. I, one of my biggest pet peeves is people who accuse people like us of like, you take PR and payola in order to uh, like, what? Where is the payola? I would love payola. Anyone listening? Yeah, give give me payola. Me. Right? Let me quit my day job. I Yo, would. you get free records. Dog, Spotify and Bandcamp exist. Everyone gets free records. That's not a thing anymore. <laughs> like, this is a right. post-scarcity world for music, which is maybe a bad thing, but it's still, it's still real. Um... But, like, it then suddenly becomes this mystifying thing that's like, yeah, no, when you make a ballot, unless you're doing a ranked, scored ballot and use very specific ballot models, funny things happen with the math. Everyone had the same number 11 and no one had the same 1 through 10. So number 11 is number 1 because everyone agrees. This is is why I always wanted to include, when I was the editor at IO, the, like, post-end-of-year wrap-up where I showed the math. And like, sure, right. the, these yeah. are the records that got like these votes. These albums got like disproportionately super high votes. These ones didn't. And, you know, I don't think the the readers necessarily cared too much. We never got like a super high response unless I had like a call to action at the end of it where I said, what were your favorite records? But like, to me, it was an important thing to have like a certain degree of transparency to demystify the process of how these sort of things are constructed. I would like to uh, to wrap this up by kind of talking about, you know, we we began this or we had the digression earlier about Iron Maiden's expanding influence out into the broader heavy metal scene. 
And I would like to posit that the sound of Synthwave has more to do with Iron Maiden than it has to do with most electronic music. As okay. a way of opening up the conversation to then talk about like, how has Iron Maiden's sound rippled out in the 21st century? Like, where have we seen Iron Maiden's influence rippling out? So let me clarify. Synthwave as a style, as far as I see it, is based on a fabricated idea of the 1980s where every single song is in a minor key, has leads harmonized in thirds over a six, seven, one chord progression. The only thing it's missing is Bruce Dickinson's vocals and accented, uh, anticipated downbeats. That's like the formula that I laid out in the first half of this episode about what the Iron Maiden sound is, is closer to synthwave than it is to a lot of heavy metal. <laughs> You didn't um, need to invite Langdon and I here just to prove that that was right, because we could have listened to it with everyone else, and like everyone else just did, not and say, fuck, he's right. Yeah, no, that's you, true. Yeah, it's... You, you made me into Langdon listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's... It, it really does sort of capture the fact that Iron Maiden has become like an invocation beyond the band itself. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, there, I, I could get into my fancy book learning words about that, but I don't think it's really necessary for this. I think the idea is when you think Maiden-esque, um, that's that's a thing. That's such a thing that it's like this has now become a foundational element of heavy metal. And I've gotten into debates with, uh, again, an unnamed someone, but there are things that are metal adjacent or that are not metal themselves, Synthwave being one of them. And it, it, it follows in that same way, these, these aesthetic elements being extrapolated outward and rarefied, but they're rarefied to um, more almost music theoretical elements that then you can swap the palette out, you can swap the instrumentation out, you can little arrangement touches, because when you hear it, when you hear Synthwave, I'm, I normally think uh, the immediate Synthwave connection is uh, Queen of the Reich by Queensryche, especially the opening. I think that in mm. terms of pure synth, I'm like, that's synth wave. But what is that? That's early Iron Maiden. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, yeah. what that is. Like, totally. um, it's, I think it's also worth noting the way that like Iron Maiden shirts and Metallica shirts as well, and you can name more boutique examples, have become yeah. sort of the go-to for like celebrities wearing metal merch. Uh, we're not going to debate the ethics of this because that's the most annoying argument that happens every six months on corny corny the the short version is this celebs wear metal merch because metal merch looks really cool and we literally don't have to think about it any harder than that yeah uh but they specifically pick out iron maiden shirts because iron maiden shirts look specifically really fucking cool and i think this is this is great this means that iron maiden are like the first thing of heavy metal that a lot of people see in the world and the fact that this is true in the 1980s and still true in the 2020s pretty fucking cool to me i don't know okay the taboo thing to say about iron maiden but also i think the obvious thing is that as great as they are as a band as amazing as they are as musicians as indelible as the songs are as the feeling that listening to them and listening to them in the crowd i'd love to see i made with these two guys as like powerful as all of that is, as much as it makes my heart sing, the thing that they are the best at 
and the thing that made them truly a cut above their peers was in fact the visual storytelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that actually ties into exactly what I was going to say. So I have a I have a smart thing that will become maybe a controversial thing. So the smart thing, um, and you can debate it if you want, but I'm right, um, is that art art is like aesthetic circuitry. It doesn't inherently contain a politics. It doesn't inherently like the recording of music doesn't contain the experience of hearing the music. And even the written politics of written work doesn't contain the political impact of that work. Because if you read something and then you act in opposition to what's written, do we credit the work for the action it inspired or for the action that it has contained in it? This becomes complicated. That's a complicated thing. But what remains is that it is an aesthetic circuitry. You have the prose of the writing. This remains. You have the notes, the arrangement. These things remain. Whether the experience of hearing it, even something as simple as like someone who's harder of hearing than someone else, someone listening on one stereo versus another stereo, someone listening to headphones as opposed to uh, in a stadium. What remains is this aesthetic component. And metal, this is this is the maybe controversial part, has always been an aesthetic that grew a sound to match it, not the other way around. Metal aesthetics did not come to describe the sounds of heavy metal. We invented heavy metal imagery and then pushed ourselves musically, historically, to match the images that we that we put forward. The whole birth of death and black metal was more looking at the really gruesome art of even like a Molly Hatchet record, you know, the Southern right, Rock band. Right, but yeah, you have yeah. this sick, like, literal hatchet-wielding, like, barbarian dude holding, like, a head, and you're like, wait, no, these guys are playing Southern Rock, though. I mean, this, this record slaps, but that's not... Um, and so, like, that's ex- this is exactly the point that that Joseph was making just in slightly. I, I went into way too much debt learning all these book words, so you have to deal with me. Um, I'm going to get my dollars worth somehow. They should never have given me that loan. What a waste of money on their end. That's irresponsible. <laughs> <laughs> these lending institutions don't deserve my student loan back. They, they made a bad call. <laughs> but, point being that- yeah, the, the point being that Iron Maiden... It, gave so much aesthetically to literally all of the heavy metal world that it becomes immediately noticeable to people outside of it. Like, mm-hmm. without their contributions, and we can we can throw into their aesthetics things like sonic aesthetics and things like that. Like, we can definitely fold their sound into it. But yes, absolutely, not even just the grandiloquence of the stage show, but just, like, look at the album art. And for especially an album-oriented... Uh, field and I've gotten some flack with previous editors about this but again I'm right metal is driven as much by the album art and the way that that dialectically engages with the music on it as as the record itself but I think you do get to a sit into a simulacra simulacrum situation with Iron Maiden's uh, ability to extend their their manifold tendrils through pop culture right and that is this is uh you know Maybe Kanye doesn't actually like Maiden, but Kanye probably does actually like his sick Iron Maiden t-shirt. But the reason he likes it is not just that it looks good. The reason he likes it is because even though they made the music to match the idea of heavy metal artwork, they made their specific artwork to match the idea in their music. And on this, I'm going to take it all the way back, back to where we started Back to Wrathchild, which to me is still the perfect fucking Iron Maiden song, right? You start that song, and literally all the first verses is 
telling you someone's backstory, someone's life story, and in that story giving you an attitude that is hyper-specific, but everyone can fucking relate to. Born into a scene, angriness and greed. Yep, dominance and persecution. Yep, mother was a queen. Sure, dad I'd never seen. Not exactly true, but fair enough. I was never meant to be. I was never meant to be. God, that pisses me off, and God, it's right. And then you just hear the bass riff and you're there, right? It's like, yes, mm. this is that feeling. The anger of the anger of, of not being wanted, right? Of not being meant to exist. Something that is specific to Paul Diano in that moment in time. But everyone, anyone, Connie West can relate to, right? And they get that attitude and they put it into an image and you see that image. And even if you don't consciously say, ah, yes, this is about the anger of unintentionally existing. You get from it the feeling of fun, snotty aggression that is earnest and that is human and that is universal. And that's the influence Iron Maiden had in all these other bands. Like, that's Joanna Newsom likes Iron Maiden. Joanna Newsom's East album does not fucking sound like Iron Maiden. But when she's like plucking those harps and she's like, this is the most fucking annoying fucking thing anyone's ever written. I'm going to do an hour of this. As she's doing that, she's she's becoming Paul Diano in a little way. Fuck you. I Mm. love Joanna Newsom. Never call her annoying again. (laughs) I love Joanna Newsom, too. But like it's like it's abrasive. It's abrasive on purpose. Well, every single one of the examples that we we've brought up of Iron Maiden's broader influence, whether it be Kanye West, whether it be the pop punk bands, whether it be synthwave in flames, what have you, that spirit pervades. You know, that spirit of like, fuck you, we're going to do it our way. And like whether or not we're supposed to do it this way is like beside the question, you know. And in fact, if you think that we're not double fuck you is like there's perhaps some element of Eddie's snarling visage that conveys that regardless of why you pick up the T-shirt. That's that is the thing that like. You now have that on your body. It is contained within you to some extent. We have, yes. we have a snapshot of this in the birth of black metal. Like, um, so obviously we have what is sometimes called the first wave of black metal, but that's almost it's almost more like non-black metal because for complex historical reasons, like the term Pre-black didn't really exist. Metal. Yeah, um, yeah. The, it, it, it was a term retrofitted to them most often after after the second wave came around and they went, these are the guys that we're pinching all of our ideas from. And those guys were all like, yeah, sure. That sounds tight. Um, Spooky but, nerd metal. Yeah. But the, the, the root impetus of especially second wave stuff came a lot more from looking at these sick record covers, putting on the record and these were death metal albums, putting them on and then going, it shouldn't sound like that. It should sound more fucked up. The cover is all fucked up. I want it to sound fucked up. And mm-hmm. th- so this notion is, very, very embedded, not just in metal. This is, in general, this is part of why rap and hip-hop are so fashion-forward. Because the fantasy of hip-hop requires... And the, uh, dumb fucking racist dorks will be like, oh, they're renting their cars, they're renting their... Yes, because they're creating this imagery so that the music can live inside of it, so that you, the listener, can live inside of this encompassed fantasy. Like, that. that is the rock and roll mythos. The rock and roll mythos is not... I have a day job. The rock and roll mythos is like, I am the fucking God and you don't know this. I'm a wrath child. Yeah. yeah. And so it's I'm like, a wrath child. 
This is mentioned this a long time ago. It's actually one of the reasons that that uh, Ian tapped me to write in general is this is something I've like I've harped on and on about. Andy O'Connor's also harped on and on about it. Warrior of God, love love you, Andy. Um, but that that notion of the similar spirit of rap and metal that it makes perfect sense that Iron Maiden crosses over into these spaces, even if people don't listen to the record. Because the thing we love about Iron Maiden, this is the part that, again, might be controversial. If the songs died, but you felt the same way, that's the thing that fucking matters. It's not Mm -hmm. the song. The song is a vehicle to an experience, is a vehicle to a mindset, to this emotional and psychological frame. And that frame absolutely crosses over. This is the thing that that Tipper Gore and people, not that everything should go back to the PMRC, but this is the thing that people who critique heavy metal for being too violent don't understand about the music, right? And it's also, unfortunately, the, the, the weirdly legitimate thing about a lot of sketchy metal, right? Which I don't approve of. However, the thing is, it's not that when I see the cover of Killers, I literally want to go run around in the street and put a hatchet through someone's eye socket. I don't. I love people. I don't want yeah. violence. I don't <laughs> want to hurt anybody. I want the sensation of being a person who can run around in the street and put a hatchet through someone's eye socket. What I want is is the amorphous sensation of it. Right? Mm-hmm. And if you can give that to me in music, great. It's like, why do I wear, like, black band t-shirts and my big fucking heavy leather jacket all the fucking time, even though I'm in my 30s? No, it's not because I think that's how a 30-year-old could dress. It's because that makes me feel closer to this fantastical version of myself I saw at the age of 14 when I was listening to fucking Judas Priest on my headphones. When I was screaming the lyrics to black and in my backyard while mowing the fucking lawn, I wasn't imagining that I'm a 14-year-old mowing the lawn listening to Metallica. I imagined I was the fucking sickest dude in the fucking world, also mowing the lawn listening to Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that Correct. covers it. Like, I, I, the experience of listening to Iron Maiden is one that only gets better with time, in part because the the pure sensation of being 14 and thinking that's the coolest thing I've ever heard never goes away. And the only thing that comes with it is all the sort of extra fun stuff of being like, it is kind of silly, but that only makes it more sick. You know, like this is a band that I think is truly timeless that are so foundationally good at what they did that they will continue to influence bands that sound zero like them for the foreseeable future. And I don't know if like, I don't care about the rock and roll hall of fame or any of that shit, but in any reasonable estimation of what it means to be one of the best bands of all time, if that criteria does not result in iron maiden being included, throw the book away. That's all I've got to say. Thank you both for joining me so much. I love talking about iron maiden. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. 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 You know me, man. Yeah. Yeah, 
rappers in my stomach, yummy I'm taking it, I ain't asking them for nothing If you sell a million records, we could battle for your money I'd rather count a hundred thousand dollars on a Sunday Watch a football game and bet it all on one point Still stunting, baby, yes, I'm still bossing Latest car on the market with the top peeled off it. Big wheels make it look a little bulky You look a little salty, help yourself a chill coffee Chill out, the guns are still out Even though I am a boss and got papers to fill out I'm busy, I got paper to reel in God, I hope they snapping at the end of my ride I hope I'm fishing in the right pine And I hope you catching on to every line